Google X, cybersecurity threats in 2023, artificial intelligence and dinosaurs, culture failures, and digital transformation careers. Those are just a few things that we're going to talk about in today's episodes of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me as always. Thanks for being here. This is the podcast that we put out each week, every Wednesday, talking about digital transformation strategies and topics ranging from the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. We've got a great show for you planned today. And uh, we're going to start off with some hot topics where we're going to talk about Google X, cybersecurity threats, artificial intelligence, and culture of failures in mergers and acquisitions. So we'll cover those three things in our, our hot topic segment. And then later in the show, we are going to have uh, Khalid Morris on the show. And Kyler, you and I are going to discuss with Khalid some uh, just guidance and recommendations and tips for digital transformation careers in 2023 as people think about how to how to pivot or upskill themselves or how to position themselves for future career opportunity. We're going to cover all that uh, in the second segment with Khalid, so be sure to stick around for that. And then last but not least, we're going to play you a clip from a recent uh, interview, Kyler, that you had with Wayne Holtham, who is the uh, head of our third stage Asia Pacific office. He's based out of Australia. In addition to being the lead of our third stage office in Australia or Asia Pacific, uh, he's also somewhat of a food and beverage industry guru. We have a few clients across the board throughout third stage globally, but especially in Asia Pacific, we have quite a bit of food and beverage uh, client work that we're doing right now. So we're going to talk about a case study for food and beverage in digital transformation uh, later in the show. So be sure to stick around for that. Um, Before we jump into these hot topics, again, new episodes every Wednesday, be sure to subscribe to us on audio podcast platforms, and you can find these new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. So uh, let's jump in. What are these hot topics you've got in store for us today, Kyler? Yeah. So first talking about kind of emerging technologies in farming or agriculture, specifically when it comes to strawberries. And a lot of this has to do with biogenetics of plants too. So creating the best strawberry crop as possible with the most efficient processes around it. So Google has an innovation lab. It's called X. It uses a variety of innovations. We talked about Google Glass a few episodes back, basically the computer in front of your face. Um, If you know um, Google Waze, which is basically the same thing as those traffic initiators with different sensors that showcases the fastest way to get something from a, a GPS standpoint. Um, And they have created another one when it comes to actually supporting sustainability in farming. So if you don't know a lot about strawberry farming, Eric, it takes at least five years to develop a new type of berry. 
um, through testing and, and different pieces. So it begins usually with a crop of around 25,000 genetically distinct plants, and then it grows into the company's breeding field near its headquarters when it's whittled down to about 250 plants, then cloned and replanted once they have everything kind of worked out to get the plant that they're hoping to get. So mineral is what they actually call the use of Google X's technology. And it's a really closely guarded project because of the innovation around the technology, but it uses cameras and machine learning to help farmers make better decisions. Uh, it usually has large unmanned rovers. So think about a, you know, a smaller self-driving car that um, are packed with sensors and cameras. They basically drive up and down the crop rows, collecting data, telling farmers which plants are thriving and which ones aren't. Um, so they have the same sort of self-driving car technology, and it, it features all-terrain wheels, half a dozen camera, all kinds of big kind of um, souped up, if you will, self-driving cars. Um, it can also be activated via a remote control, and ultimately, it lets the company direct themselves by making the best decisions most efficiently and with less labor. It can also monitor pesticides, so less money spent on fertilizers and other chemicals within the plant. Uh, and again, this showcases a lot of the technology that's been used in their drones, satellites, and even smartphones. The reason Google has put so much money and allocated um, into this specific mineral project is because the lack of addition, additional regulations that might be holding back some of their drone-based projects, um, self-driving cars, those types of different things. So using kind of the agricultural mechanism, which has less compliance, less safety issues, to kind of test those more mainstream technologies. So wanted to get your feedback of kind of testing across industry, looking at an industry that might have less regulations, less compliance, but utilizing the same technology, learning from that and actually adopting that into more of a mainstream consumer technology that might be emerging in marketplaces, but almost safety checked in other verticals. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to get ahead of the curve, you know, instead of waiting until there is a regulation or a safety requirement, if you can uh, have more of an open greenfield approach to how you might use something like a Google X. Um, that, that, in my opinion, is ideal. So does Google X then, is it, I mean, what exactly does it do in this case? Is it leveraging artificial intelligence, machine learning, and things like that to, to take big data and get to these conclusions that you were just describing? Yeah, so Google X is actually the lab that owns all of these umbrella different technologies. So we talk okay. about glass, we talk about ways, we talk about mineral, which is actually what this piece is called, the sensor-driven, data collecting, machine learning, self-driving um, sensors that basically showcase the data and are able to manipulate which plants are performing better as opposed to having to wait those five years to perfect that um, and spend obviously additional costs. So think of it, Google X is the whole overall program. Mineral is what they're hoping to scale from these different types of learnings without having to go through additional compliance and regulations. And what's great about that is it's it's totally transforming business models or it has the potential to totally transform a business model to where you're not just automating the way you've always done things, but now you're you're figuring out ways to use technology to to really uh, change the way you you run your operations and how you service your customers. So I think it's a really cool idea that could be 
you can imagine a bunch of different case studies or examples where you might use that that sort of an approach in other industries as well. Yeah, and it has really that business application where it is a true kind of B2B pass-through. So Google, the application, the software designer, hardware designer, right, passes it to the agricultural farmer or that institution, as opposed to it being a direct-to-consumer play that adds you know, additional um, issues and um, complexities around that strategy. Right. Yeah, it's very cool. It's exciting stuff. Yeah, I know. So now every time you have a strawberry, you'll think about, wow, this took five years to perfect. And they have, it's always hard to visualize um, the case studies on an audio format. But think of it, if you had like a big plate full of strawberries, they'll, the actual machine will place boxes around this one has mildew. This one has, isn't the optimal size. This one's to one color. So it actually showcases that points to the most viable if you want strawberry and then uses that to actually create the new plants so it's interesting certainly. that is really interesting yeah and it, yeah, it's so. a good reminder how complex food supply chains can be and how how much technology can help it and that that'll you know tying back to our third segment later today mm-hmm. with the food and beverage case study it'll be interesting to compare that future state of you know the, what technology could do with what we're actually seeing food and beverage companies do today uh, in our client base too Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And and kind of moving on to another emerging industry, we obviously have seen cybersecurity kind of, you know, blow up on the scene um, in different pieces of enterprise tech. Uh, And usually at the close of the year is where we see all of the top 10, top six, top five lists coming out um, for different 2023 strategies as we're ending 2022 right now. So this is the top cybersecurity threats in 2023 and actually pulled out one that we really haven't talked a lot about on this show that I thought we could kind of dig into, and that's data poisoning. Hmm. So a 2022 IBM study found that 35% of companies were using AI in their business and over 42 were exploring it. So obviously the growth of AI, which has opened up new possibilities for, unfortunately, cyber threats. So the causes of of data poisoning in AI have started to appear, and that's a kind of a malicious actor that finds its way into injecting corrupt data into an AI system that will result in that system malfunctioning or losing or, you know, in worst case scenarios, stealing um, that data. So they use kind of what's called... um, an attack vector, and maybe you know what that is a little bit better than I do, onto a corporate system. Uh, and that's the only way to protect against the continuous AI data poisoning and the monitoring of those overall structures. So I know you talk a lot about that when it comes to emerging technology and those health checks that you need to make sure that you're going through because it's only as good as the data that's put into it. Um, so wanted to get your feedback on on this idea of, of toxic data, data poisoning, and making sure that enterprises understand and are aware of that when it comes to integrating things like artificial intelligence and machine learning into your overall enterprise technology portfolio. Well, it's a really important point. I mean, even if you set aside the cybersecurity piece of it, which I know is the whole point of you bringing this up, but even if you set that aside... One of the big challenges with data in general, even if you just look at basic reporting or business intelligence, is that the data behind it 
may not be good in, in your reporting and your analytics and your BI, your business intelligence is only as good as the data behind it. And that's even more true as you step up the, the ladder here and then start to talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning where data is even more important. So first of all, I'd say that organizations have a big enough challenge just trying to get to that next level of having clean data that actually supports machine learning and AI. But then you add to the layer of, of cybersecurity threat and that further complicates the whole the whole thing. And so I think having um, you know tight, tight, uh, tight data governance in place and data management in place, as well as um, you know just cleaning up the data in particular to start, and then also having you know cybersecurity mechanisms in place to protect that data. It, it's even more important as you start talking about AI and machine learning for sure. What about the diversification of the human component of health checks? So we've seen a lot in the cybersecurity world that has moved towards actually employees as being a cybersecurity threat. So when you're talking about these health checks, should this be a team? Should this be one person? Should this be a variety of levels within the organization? What should that look like? Well, it depends on how big the company is or, or how complex your organization is and how you structure. But in general, um, you're right. You want to have strong data governance in place and data management processes to where you're controlling that data, managing the data, um, even, you know, not just from nefarious actors or people that are trying to corrupt the data, but also just broken processes or human errors that cause corruption to the data. So if you can put in place strong data governance and data management processes that help achieve that, then, you know, to me, that's the sort of the gold standard of how you get to that data cleanliness or how you preserve that data cleanliness and, and preserve the, the security of that data. But as far as the size of the team on those health checks, it, it really just depends on how big the company is and how big the IT department is and how much data and how many systems you're talking about too. Yeah. And I guess just having that awareness that unfortunately that becomes a real reality that you just need to have the awareness around that risk mitigation when it comes to cybersecurity and understanding you know, the, the internal needs um, to kind of monitor that throughout the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of huge threats, literally, <laughs> um, AI and dinosaurs. So this, this is actually out of Brisbane. So fo a focus on our Australian audience today with not only our hot topics, but also having um, Wayne on. But so large dinosaur footprints were discovered back in the 1970s, and they're called the Dinosaur Stampede National Monument in Queensland, Australia. And so there it's the stampede. Think of it as a couple humongous big dinosaur footprints and a lot of little dinosaur footprints. So a lot of um, dinosaur scientists and archaeologists assumed that that big dinosaur caused that because it was a large predator. Um, so what happened is they utilized uh, AI to actually model what the dinosaur would look like and found it to be, it was actually just a very large herbivore um, as opposed to a carnivore when it comes to causing the stampede. Um, so this this a program is actually called Deep Convolutional Neural Networks. <laughs> That's the actual oh, name of it. It's a mouthful. And it was trained wow. off of 1,500 dinosaur footprints, um, which were all from different origins and different types of dinosaurs. Um, and the, the results were clear. It was a large herbivore dinosaur. 
so without modern technology, they would have never been able to establish that piece in history. So there were there were three researchers on the team. One thought it was a, a pro meat eater, as they called it. One person was undecided and one was a pro plant eater. So really the technology was able to take the human science to the next level to actually give an answer of what that was like um, in modern history. So another kind of fun use of AI that's taught us a lot about the history of not only our planet, but species through data and being able to model out what that actually looked like. So still no, not clear why the stampede happened as nobody was getting eaten at that point, but still <laughs> right. a very large dinosaur and some very small dinosaurs running around Brisbane, Australia. It's good to know if uh, dinosaurs ever make a resurgence here on Earth, do uh, we've got the AI to potentially protect us. It makes you wonder, like, you know, with all this historic um, use of or use of historic data in AI, things like you start to think about things like climate change, speaking of dinosaurs and why they died, um, presumably, you think about climate change and what are the correlations or the things that are actually driving climate change and really better understanding that using more accurate data or more accurate models, I think that would be super interesting. So there's a lot in history and where we're headed in the world that could potentially benefit from AI. So that's super interesting. Yeah. And even thinking, you know, bringing it back to kind of what we talk about here, but business technology, having the opportunity to model out a future state, um, I assume would be very helpful when we're talking about things like target operating models or specific manufacturing, product manufacturing, those types of, of different industries. It seems like it would be efficient in the fact that it gives you the opportunity to kind of test those and manipulate data points without actually, you know, wasting a, a ton of time and materials. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, let's let's move to um, our last hot topic here, which is culture failures kill mergers. Um, so I was doing some some research a lot of times at the end of the year, like I said, um, bigger annual reports come out specifically on digital transformation and culture and attaching those metrics. Um, and I came across a case study that I wanted to share. It's kind of a mainstream failure when it comes to not investing in organizational culture, which led to failures. So um, Daimler and Chrysler merged. Um, Daimler acquired Chrysler in 1998, you know, two automotive companies. And the individual corporate cultures clashed so bad that it ultimately led to a failure. And by 2007, the company split because they could not seem to integrate the two different cultures. Um, they were both working with their respective organizations that are independent. And so you talk about American versus German, and nobody took the time to consider consider what that would mean as far as a new unified co corporate culture, um, individual values, unique legacies, those different pieces, and plan that out before the acquisition took place. So it led to a, a loss in, in not only the merger acquisition, but a bunch of time and money because a company did not effectively invest in a planning around an M&A culture assimilation. So as someone who is an expert specifically in assimilating technologies and a technology portfolio, portfolio for mer mergers and acquisitions, but also understanding the importance of organizational change, kind of that heightened atmosphere in those types of specific ecosystems. I wonder if you could kind of give us um, your two cents on what happens 
to organizations if they don't really take into consideration the ROI of culture when they are looking at going through a big transformation or specifically a merger and acquisition. Yeah, I mean, it can lead to a lot of problems as demonstrated by that case study with with Daimler Chrysler, especially when you've got two large companies like that that are really well established, have been around for a long time, um, have they're they're rooted in different cultures, they've grown up over decades, and you know, it's, it, that makes culture that much harder to change. And it's not to say that Daimler Chrysler should never have merged. That's not necessarily the case, but it does suggest that maybe they should have been more deliberate about understanding what those cultural nuances or differences were. And that probably would have affected the value or the perceived value. Cause if you would have done it right, you would have invested a lot more time and money in getting the culture right, which, you know, doesn't happen overnight, requires a lot of change management, takes time and cost, all that good stuff. But there's other examples too, you know, like uh, around that same time in the late, I think it was the late nineties, um, AOL and Time Warner uh, merged and you had like AOL at the time was a, for those who don't remember, America Online was the, you know, the internet provider, kind of kind of like the Google of, of the 90s. Um, so you had AOL and then uh, Time Warner, which is a old school traditional media company combining with a high tech innovative company, which AOL actually was innovative at one point in time. And a tech based company, you try to merge those two things and that didn't work either. That was, there's a lot of cultural clash there. There's a lot of lost shareholder value company didn't do well uh, longer term. And I think they've since spun off or kind of gone, you know, revert reverse backwards on that, that whole merger. But it just, it, it goes to show that it, the bigger the company, the higher the stakes, the more important it is because it's harder to change those cultures. And you just have to understand um, why that is. And I, I do remember, you know, I was getting my master's degree right around that time when Daimler Chrysler merged and when AOL Time Warner merged. And I was getting my MBA and uh, that was a big part of what we studied was culture and you know, integrating operations and how difficult M&A can be due to cultural conflicts. Absolutely. Yeah. Investing the time in kind of that post-merger organizational culture and avoiding that disruption seems to be a, a main strategy that sometimes doesn't always come to the forefront um, unless it is a very public failure. Um, and that can happen in any size and any complexity of organization. Yeah, although I would say it's a little bit easier when it's a big company buying a smaller company. You, you know, you hate to say it, but you can impose the big company's culture onto the smaller company easier than if you're trying to merge two equals. Um, but having said that, it's still really important because if even if you think you're just going to impose your will culturally on a on an acquisition, you know, the last thing you want is to lose employees and to, and to disrupt that culture that made them successful and made them an attractive target for you to buy. So really being deliberate about what is it we want this combined entity to be going forward when all is said and done, that's something that should be part of the due diligence. But the problem is you get a lot of private equity and finance types that are looking at dollars and cents and they're not they're not connecting the dots between culture, cultural integration and shareholder value or or merger and acquisition value. Do you think with these data points around failure um, and looking that Harvard Business Review um, did a study that between um, 70 and 90 merger and acquisitions failed due to culture. Is that something that you feel like is a, is taken into consideration more in the PE world at this point? I think it is. Yeah, it seems like there's a general awareness of it more so now than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so yeah, I think it, there's an awareness, but it's still something that for a lot of people, they, they don't know what it means. Like, okay, we don't want to fail because of culture, but they don't necessarily know what the, what the prescription is. You know, what's the right, what's the way to address that? 
And I think that's, you know, translating the general knowledge into action and due diligence in a M&A situation is, in my opinion, what's what's missing still today. And in that due diligence, when the third stage group, when we actually activate um, on a merger and acquisition, because we help kind of streamline the technical processes, um, is that something that we kind of look at in the assessment phase of kind of what is what is culture A versus what is culture B and how will that influence what software we select or what technology we recommend? It does. And, and we're happy to do that. But part of the problem with that model is a lot of times we come into situations where there is a set of assumptions behind the merger acquisition that we weren't part of. And there's a set of expectations that we weren't a part of setting. And then we come in to execute and help define now, let's figure out how to integrate these companies. And this is, by the way, this is not just true for um, mergers and acquisitions. It's also true for organic growth. When you grow the company and you set up different business units throughout the world or in different industries, each one's going to have its own subculture. And if you try to combine them, which a lot of organizations do as they get bigger, if and when you go to combine them, then you sometimes run into even just subcultural issues internally within the same company. And so you just have to be real deliberate about it. And ideally, you know, the PE guys and gals, they're assessing and doing due diligence up front would do some of that work, or they'd hire someone like us to do it. Um, but typically they don't. And then when it's the mergers already said and done, now they want to consolidate and standardize operations. That's where we come in and then figure out how to, how to put the pieces back together, which in my opinion is more difficult than if you just figure that out up front. And costly, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I, th I think that, you know, is a, a good kind of segue into our conversation when it comes to what are those competencies and what are those needs as a consultant to actually be able to execute on that, that very big ask when it comes to not only merger and acquisitions, but understanding how technology will affect and influence and hopefully provide value to an organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely something that even if you're not going through a merger or acquisition, you're just trying to standardize or consolidate operations and organizational roles and responsibilities, that culture piece of it is uh, oftentimes the Achilles heel or the pitfall that organizations fall into. So good stuff. Well, thank you for those those hot topics. That's, that's uh, all four of those things are really important as we look to the new year in 23 and beyond. Um, and speaking of 2023 and beyond, we are going to talk about careers in digital transformation. So we wanted to have uh, Khalid Morris, who's a director at Third Stage Consulting uh, here in our US office. He's gonna join us to talk with you and I about Third Stage or about digital transformation careers, including if you wanted to work for Third Stage, that's one of the things we'll cover, uh, but more broad than that. So we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be back with more transformation ground control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. You can find new episodes of our show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, including Amazon, Google, Spotify, Apple, etc. So be sure to check us out there, subscribe to the show. You can also find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter every Wednesday. So be sure to check that out. And if you go to our YouTube channel, you can actually go back and watch any of the previous 94 episodes, 94 glorious episodes, I might add. Uh, you can check that out uh, on our on our playlist on either uh, the third stage and or uh, my personal YouTube channel. Um, so we want to shift gears a bit, move on from hot topics and really talk about careers and career growth, career development. Um, and, you know, the, the holidays, end of year holidays, end of year in general, oftentimes is a, is a time when people reflect back on the year. What did they accomplish? What didn't they accomplish? What do they want to accomplish in the new year? So we thought it'd be a good time to have a conversation about what, you know, how do you, how do you advance your career in digital transformation in 23 and beyond? And we wanted to do this from two different angles. We want to do it from the perspective of people that are perhaps industry, they have industry experience, but they haven't, um, they want to move into IT or consulting, or perhaps it's a recent, if you're a recent college grad and you're looking for a way to break into digital transformation, we want to cover that. And we really want to cover both the angles of, of different roles, all types of roles within digital transformation. And it's a pretty broad field that includes internal team members, internal transformation team members, internal IT department employees, as well as outside consultants. So regardless of where you are, where you want to be in the IT and digital transformation space, we really wanted to have a conversation about, um, about some of the lessons and, and advice we would give to people that are trying to, to pivot or, or grow their career in digital transformation. So with that, we thought, uh, Kyler, we'd invite uh, Khalid Morris to the show, uh, who's a director of strategy and transformation here in our U.S. office. He's actually someone I've worked with for 12 or 13 years, uh, two different companies. So he's someone I know really well, and he's uh, he's a coach as well. He's, he's He coaches uh, youth sports, so that brings a different perspective um, as well. And he used to be a competitive athlete at the collegiate level too, which uh, again, brings a, brings a different perspective, but a really effective one. So we thought we'd have that conversation here. So uh Khalid, welcome to the show. Kyle, oh, thanks for having me. So I, I thought it'd be great to have the two of you on the show here today um, because I know uh, both of you enjoy some of these topics that we're, we're going to be discussing here today. Um, Kyler, you're a, you're a working mom, so you have sort of the angle of how to balance all the various things that moms and working professionals do, um, as well as just obviously understanding consulting and, and digital transformation in general. And uh, Khalid, in addition to having extensive consulting background the reason i thought you'd be interesting to have in this discussion is because you're a coach as well which i always find <laughs> fascinating i think as someone that coaches little kids or your kids aren't so little anymore but your younger kids coaching them in sports and basketball in particular um that coaching mentality i think is something that comes in handy when we when we start talking about careers and how to evolve in in one's career um so i guess just to start um just to get the conversation going here what are what are some of the skills that you think are most important for the digital transformation space as we look to 2023 and, and beyond? What are some of the skills and or characteristics that you think it takes to be successful in today's day and age in the digital transformation space? Why don't we start with you, Khalid? What are your thoughts there? Well, I, I, I think that digital transformation is a pretty broad kind of space. I think it covers you know so many lines. So there's so many different ways to come at it. Um, uh, technical skills are always great. Uh, you know, so again, you know, we'll, we'll touch off on which particular ones, I guess, and when it's, um, applicable, but in this case, transformation actually doesn't have a ton to do with kind of these hyper IT 
sort of mm-hmm. skills. It's very business oriented. It's very change ordering or oriented. It's having to deal with uh, the business world that's going around you. So really you can bring into a transformation space kind of broader uh, business skills, um, broader understanding of how processes work and um, re-engineering uh, those particular processes and then how to talk and work with um, uh, uh, the staff, the employee base, like the people that are, that are going to be impacted the most. So ironically, I see a lot of HR and a lot of kind of organizational uh, design and change management in the transformation uh, space. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I, I like your point about it being not as technical as you might think, you know, certainly the technical skills are important, but that business understanding that business acumen, I would argue is a stronger foundation to work from or a stronger foundation to build. If you, if you really want to be successful in the digital transformation space, what are your thoughts on that, Kyler? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I think there's there's certain a hyper target for technical skills, and that's important as far as a cohesive team. Uh, but when it comes to actual transformation, the collaboration and the communication of understanding how technology as a backbone of your organization or institution really touches all of the different departments. So understanding those perspectives and uniting around a really cohesive and clear business strategy is is really, really um, key. So with that, you need a lot of business technologists and communicators within your transformation team to be able to make sure that you're continuing to maintain your commitment to those strategic goals. Um, and that evolution is something that we've seen in the industry in the last five to 10 years become really forefront in making your transformation successful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And, and sort of segueing or building on that, um, comment you just made, um, <laughs> Kyler is a Gassan on LinkedIn. Uh, was coming in hot here this morning on the conversation uh, with a uh, suggestion that anger management skills might be the most important <laughs> skill. Um, but even though it's a humorous comment, and I think uh, I, I know Gassan, and I think he's probably trying to be 50% funny and 50% serious. <laughs> um, but uh, regardless of his intent of that comment, I think he brings up a good point, which is the uh, sort of the, the emotional intelligence and the mm-hmm. EQ required to be successful in digital transformations in general, whether you're, you know, an internal leader or a project team member or a consultant helping a, an organization through a transformation. You know, Khalid, what has what some of your experience been in terms of that emotional intelligence or just sort of the, the soft skills that are required to be successful in this industry? There's, there's always a contingent uh, that resists change, like even I think in positive scenarios, um, mm-hmm. but in more negative scenarios, sometimes that contingent is pretty strong. And, uh, you know, conflict resolution, I think, is a very powerful skill set uh, when you're dealing with transformational work, um, because uh, you really have to, you know, talk groups off the cliff, you know, talk people off the cliff as it relates to uh, some of the shifts that are happening. It's, it's uh, sensitive for them. You may have spent a significant amount of time. Uh, you may be the you know foremost expert in a particular application at your organization, and then the organization comes in and shifts your your careers. Uh, a lot of people's careers are tied to a specific application. Um, mm-hmm. You know that that's where they feel like they're they're of value when you when they're in that application. You're talking about whether it's from a technical perspective or just operational, and so. Uh, yeah, they're very sensitive about the idea of we're going to make this gigantic shift and everybody's going to start from ground zero. So so no one knows the software. So now you have 
competition of sort that sort of is happening uh, in the field. And so, yeah, it's it's an emotional space transformation. Uh, that's why communication, to Kyler's point, is huge. Um, a lot of those communication planning skills, MARCOM skills are huge in this particular space, just so you can start to speak to some of the concerns, fears uh, that people have uh, when they're dealing with transformation, what's coming, what's around the corner before anything has even been implemented, um, mm -hmm. to, to be able to start to talk about how you're going to start to tackle this and, and what the what the plan is going to look like for uh, for, for success. Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. What, what are your thoughts, Kyler? Yeah. I think building on that, we, we joke like Gassan, who's always um, a great listener and contributor who makes us laugh um, on a weekly basis. So thank you, Gassan, for always bringing that entertainment value. Um, but I, we joke about how our, um, our practitioners in digital transformation are real therapists because you do have to kind of mine through that resistance that Khalid put on the table, whether it's intentional or not intentional. Um, you have to understand what is kind of the root cause behind that and address it so that you can move forward without disruption or any sort of, of, of project issues around what is the team going through because it is a very high stress environment with a lot of vulnerabilities. And when you think about it from just, you know, an overall human needs standpoint, this is someone's job. It's their livelihood. It's their, you know, the way they provide for their families. So understanding the significance of that fear and how it can, you know, really cause that anxiety in the workplace is, is something that really has become a true um, need within a digital transformation process and approach. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and Gassan added to the discussion here again, as far as listening skills and negotiation skills being mm -hmm. important to transformation. I think that's something that's really important. I mean, I think, um, especially in consulting, I think that's one thing that I think consultants in general are not good at, but they should be a lot better at, or at least the, the more successful consultants I've worked with are the ones that can listen the most and really understand, understand the needs of a business. I think the, one of the problems with our industry in the digital transformation space is we have this, uh, we have this mentality in general that we have the answers. You know, we have the best practices. We have the technology. We have a proven solution that will work for your business if you would just, you know, get your own needs out of the way and just use our software. And so it creates this mentality of we don't need to listen because we have best practices. We have the answers. Um, but I think that's highly ineffective, especially from a change management perspective and, and creating change resistance to the process. And one of the best ways to mitigate resistance to change is to just listen and understand what the needs are. Even if the solution or the answer you come to is the same either way, at least you've listened and you you know you kind of understand what the needs are. So I think that's a really important point too. Is you know that listening piece of it, in my opinion, is it's the most important skill in my opinion for being a good consultant. But mm -hmm. even just being a project team member, a CIO, a transformation lead, whatever your role might be, especially or change manager, if you're part of the change management team, you really have to listen and understand the needs. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of blowback from the organization, for sure. So, so Kyle, I know you had some some questions too you want yeah. to ask. So maybe I'll I'll turn it to you to maybe drill Khalid and I a bit on on some <laughs> of your your questions for us. Yeah, good. Can you like feel my energy, my moderation energy? You know, it's so yes. hard for me to always be the one not asking the question. Yeah, I know you're just dying to jump <laughs> like, in. Like over here, you know, chomping <laughs> at the bit, if you will. But um, you know, I know both of you have had very successful careers in um, just overall IT consulting, digital transformation consulting, change management consulting, which is now kind of grown in to the digital transformation industry holistically. 
And I, I wonder if I could ask you, looking into 2023 or in the 2020s and beyond, what are some of those roles that you feel like are really high demand when it comes to the digital transformation industry? And and um, let's start with you, Eric. What are some you know roles that you've seen kind of emerge and you continue to, to see grow? Well, two that come to mind off the bat are, one is architecture, you know, anyone that can, and I know I'm 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 moving straight off the emotional soft skills straight into the technical stuff by saying architecture, but it is a hard skill that I think a lot of organization um, that a lot of organizations need and could benefit from, especially with all the emerging technologies that are out there and the uses of multiple technologies throughout an organization. Someone that can understand architecture and how it all ties together, I think, is very important. And then the other piece that comes to mind is anything to do with uh, data science. Um, analytics, business intelligence, that's such an important thing right now from a, from a technical skill set perspective. Um, and then, you know, there's other things like change management, program management that are just, they've always been really important. They will continue to be really important. So I do not want to be dismissive of those important skills uh, either. But I think the two that come to mind as far as things that are changing and becoming more important, I'd say architecture and uh, analytics and the whole data science piece of it. Absolutely. And Khalid, being kind of an expert, a resident expert in, in data science and, and those maybe more hard technical skills, what are some things that you've seen maybe on the technical side and then the not so technical side as emerging roles in digital transformation? Yeah, I, I, ironically, it feels like a lot of transformation work is moving a little more niche. Um, you know, there, there's broader, you think of it from an ERP perspective, like all of the functional areas that are being impacted by uh, a transformational journey. But I'm, I'm seeing a lot of companies kind of go more narrow, kind of just the finance mm -hmm. department itself is looking for a transformational uh, support or expert. And um, you might look at specifically on like the logistics or supply chain side, but it seems like there's a lot, there's, there's a demand that's sort of emerging for transformation within specific niches or within specific functional areas. And it's it's the same work. It kind of gets into a lot of those architectural spaces, but I think a lot of the energy there has to do with the uh, edge systems, if you will, that are sort of emerging. So you'll have like a group, like a finance or logistics group that knows they don't have the budget to reshape all of, uh, all of their needs there, um, but they know look, we have enough to sort of just get this one application, <clears throat> maybe it's budgeting, maybe it's not connected, or they'll figure out how to connect it to the rest of the system, but they need something very specific, and they know it's going to require a certain amount of transformation on the um, team side, on the finance team side. So then they will look for those kind of skill sets, right? And and it's, it's impacting on the data side. So they might look for a technical resource mm -hmm. or a transformation resource that can help them specifically, not for the company, but just on the finance side or just the logistics side. And so I think the technical skills are always going to be in demand mm -hmm. um, uh, from a, from a uh, uh, NIT or transformation uh, perspective, they're always going to be in demand, but you still, I don't, I don't want those to cloud the broad need there because you're still in the same vein of requiring communication and, and a lot of those soft skills that, you know, I think sometimes on the technical side, they rely on, you know, they, they get too reliant on 
having uh, technical acumen. And I think it's great. It's like if, you, if you're a software engineer out there, a great software engineer is like a great lawyer. You don't need it. And you don't know you need that person until they're there. And it's like, well, you saved me. Like, there's no way we can get out of it. So there's no substitute for great technical acumen. Uh, but I think people that really have success in this space are able to, uh, you know, pull that into the soft skills that are still extremely necessary because everyone isn't necessarily going to be dealing with the technical aspect. You have to be able to communicate what's needed there. You have to have soft skills mm -hmm. that uh, connect to some of those harder technical skills for, I think, uh, to have success in transformation. And really, um, you know, leadership style or upper echelon type of IT or development uh, uh, success as well. We're here chatting with Kyler and Khalid from the third stage team talking about careers and digital transformation in 2023 and beyond. We have a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation, all that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. I'm here with Khalid and Kyler talking about digital transformation careers in 2023 and beyond. Let's get back to it. I want to jump into leadership a, a little bit um, as well, but I want to get back to our audience real quick. And, and Eric is driving, so he can help me pull up some of these comments. But just looking at where our global audience is joining us from, we have Newcastle, England, Jake over on YouTube. He's looking to be a cloud consultant. So great conversation to listen to. Um, Gassan from Kuwait, Mario, um, who's from Dallas, Daniel up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, who's probably frozen at this point, <laughs> Chris from Oklahoma, um, Sam Graham from Spain, Ryan from Denver. So I want to go into actually a question from Daniel on LinkedIn that talked about what are the similarities specifically, Khalid, you see between coaching um, and your athletics background and, and um, Khalid was a collegiate athlete. Um, and still a very, very um, renowned coach in our area. 
um, and digital transformation. And before I, I let you answer this question, um, we do have some moderators in the, the comments here. So they'll drop some additional supplementary content. Uh, actually, Khalid and Eric did a full live stream on what is it like to coach through a digital trans transformation. So we'll link that here so you can see that discussion. But it's a, it's a definitely a very um, true and valuable connection between being a digital transformation coach and and both of your sons I know are um, play basketball as well. So if you want to touch on kind of what that looks like um, from a coaching perspective, I, I'm honestly it's it's leadership. I and mean, a good coach is a good leader. And you know, and obviously I I deal more with kids, but it's easy to be a leader of kids, right? Because they're they don't know that much and so they're just looking to you and you know but in the workplace uh you're you're dealing with men you're dealing with women and um, these are adults that you know are are bringing a certain amount of for lack of a better word baggage you know to the table whether it's their own careers their anxieties concerns like future plans ambitions they're bringing all of these things to the workplace every single day and, and whether they work remotely or or if it's an on-site. And so uh, from a from a transformation perspective, you have to be a leader um, and you have to bring leadership skills to the conversation. That's why technical is not enough. Uh, you have to be able to connect with people and help people through what it is that that they're dealing with so that you know everyone can be on the same page. That's the tough part about coaching. It's you have different skill levels. Some people are great, some people aren't. But just the same, we all have to be on the same page about how we're going to approach a situation or how we're going to have success. And and that's the part that I think sometimes people miss, but that's where that similarity, you know, really happens. This is a leadership conversation and, and you have to bring those skills uh, to the table to 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 really move a group of adults uh, to um, where they need to be. Absolutely. And, and building on that really great point, Eric, when you come in as a consultant and you're working with the leadership of an organization, how do you create that comfortability or that approachability with the leadership team to ensure you can create an impact in helping them to progress their project forward? Well, I think a lot of it gets back to you know, first of all, building credibility as an outside consultant, you have to have a certain amount of uh, credibility. You have to be trusted. Um, the client has to like you. The executive team has to just like you as a person, which is difficult because, you know, not everyone's as likable as others. So it, it's, that makes it a little bit more difficult, but I think some of the best ways to build that credibility and trust are to, li are to listen, you know, back to the listening point and really just understand what the needs are. I think, you know, one of the big challenges in the digital transformation space that, that I see in the last I don't know, three to five years maybe, is a, an emerging or a, a growing distrust of the digital transformation incumbents. So like the big the big software vendors, the big system integrators. Um, there's always been some skepticism, but lately in the last few years, it feels like it's getting worse. And I think the reason for that is because, again, we as an industry are not listening. We're coming in with our prepackaged, pre-configured solutions. We're coming in with our cloud technologies that are silver bullets that solve all the world's problems. And we're sort of forcing force fitting it into situations where it shouldn't, where it doesn't belong. And of course, the, the failure rate of digital transformations being so high as it's always been, I think that's contributing to the lack of trust in, in the market. So I think, you know, if you're part of a digital transformation team, or especially if you're a consultant, you know, building that credibility by listening, understanding, and just being open-minded too, I think that's another thing is you can't, 
just drink the Kool-Aid of SAP or Microsoft or Oracle or Deloitte or Accenture or where, you know, whatever, insert big name here. They tend to have their, their sort of their, their right answers, if you will. And mm-hmm. I think one of the keys to being an effective transformation team member and or consultant is to not come in with the answers predefined, but really just understand and diagnose and create a solution and help execute a solution that is aligned with strategic goals and objectives. Back to your point earlier, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, th- that's 100% what an effective consultant does. So I want to kind of go down the rise of those those independents or the um, success of overall third stage. If you are um, unaware, third stage did just receive um, a, a top one third ranking on Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing companies in the United States. Um, so that's something that is a kind of a huge honor for us. It's our first year on the list as a company that's only four years old. And we've seen this emergence within the industry of clients and our community reaching out for that independent and that agnostic advice. And Khalid, as someone who's worked on kind of both sides of being an independent consultant and then also, you know, being a system integrator and being on that side of the business, why do you think that shift? is happening specifically in the industry um so and it has such volume and momentum behind it it's interesting that's an interesting question i think it's 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 probably twofold first i think the model for a lot of those system integrators is to attack problems with people and so the teams are huge where they historically have been and that's that's part of been that's part of the price tag you know of kind of throwing 50 people at a problem I've been on um, uh, implementation projects with really large footprints and, you know, internally the conversation was about coverage. Let's make sure the client knows we're there and, you know, you're there with the people that are there and you're like, they're, they're really, they really don't need to be there. Right. Like, cause they're half of them are learning are, are, are trying to figure it out. Um, other half of them are working. Like it's, it's sort of this mix of too many people, trying to deal with a complicated problem. I think that with a lot of the uh, independent groups, they've been able to target um, specific problems a little bit more strategically, right? Where you kind of have kind of the smaller smart team that's dealing with a, you know, core aspect of the problem. And they sound, you know, they make more sense, so to speak, uh, for a lot of organizations versus trying to just kind of just throw a bunch of money or a bunch of resources at it, but rather just attacking it with a small, smart plan um, um, that's acute in nature, um, but is highly, highly effective, right? Or even having a methodology behind that, that sort of time, you know, that's sort of proven as opposed to, again, just resourcing uh, a problem. So I guess there's different, you know, um, aspects to it, but you space from the experiences that I've had, I, I would say that um, I, I think a lot of those independent groups are a little more strategic. That's a, a really interesting answer. And and with that strategy, Eric, it seems like you've seen the need for that in the industry and have a quite remarkable story on how you've created not only content and conversation around that in this, the public and social media space, but also how you've created, kind of carved out that niche for specific consultancy and client work. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw that need or how your instincts kind of told you that that was going to be something that was a real value in the marketplace, that that independent and agnostic lens to digital transformation? 
Yeah, it it um it actually started really early in my career when I was working at one of the aforementioned uh, big system integrators. That's where I started my career was at was at Price Waterhouse, um, doing change management consulting primarily. Although I also did software selection and process reengineering and some other stuff, but. I was jaded, you know, on one hand, I really liked consulting from the start, but I also really didn't like it because of the, the bias that we had. And, and I was part of that. And I remember, um, I actually remember early on when I was, when I would go to work, when I'd go to the client or when I was traveling to a client, a lot of times I would put on that song, uh, welcome to the machine by Pink Floyd. And if you know that song, if anyone that knows that song, it's about just being part of the machine and a cog in the machine and being taken advantage of and all that kind of theme and it's, it's it might be a bit extreme but that's sort of how i felt being in the industry at the time is i felt like i was part of this machine and i felt kind of dirty you know like i just didn't feel like i was doing the right thing um and that's what it was expected of me it was not to do the right thing in my opinion and so and actually um sam graham had a question that i think maybe helps point this out or maybe build build on your question a little bit more but he's but he asked the question is a consultant with only one tool actually just a salesperson and how much do consultancies and sales overlap? And that, that's a brilliant question because I've never really thought of it in that context. But that, in my opinion, that question strikes at the heart of what's wrong with our industry and what's wrong with, with digital transformations in general is that when you're not independent, you're affiliated with some software solution, some software vendor. And your job is to promote that product and to figure out how to expand the footprint of that product, how to implement it to as many people as you can within an organization the implementing company typically gets commission on how much software they're selling. So there's just a ton of monetary incentive to push one product. And so to Sam's point, consultants oftentimes are just glorified salespeople. They're out there to promote a product and to push that product out um, to people. And sometimes it's the right fit. Sometimes it's not uh, more, you know, too often it's not the right fit and, and it ends up being sort of forcing a square peg into a round hole. Um, not to say that, you know, people listening should really second guess the technology they're deploying, but you should really be selective about where you deploy technology instead of just, you know, deploying, you know, one size fits all answer. So I think, you know, that independent model, in my opinion, is really important because back to the trust thing, it's hard to trust someone you know is getting paid mm -hmm. to promote one product over another or one technology, regardless of whether or not it's the right fit for you. And so that independence, I think one thing I've noticed in our thought leadership and just YouTube videos, podcasts, all that stuff is people trust us. I mean, they trust us because we're not trying to sell anything. We're pretty transparent that we make money from our clients. Clients pay us to do stuff and that's where we make our money. That's the only place we make money from. We don't make money from software vendors. We don't get commission. So our sole focus is on our clients, which may sound like a no brainer, but it's not a no brainer because the subtle difference with other consulting firms is yes, they're making money from their clients, but they're also making money, a lot of money from software vendors for promoting certain products. So I think that's, um, you know, that independence, I thought, you know, even back when I was part of the machine, listening to Pink Floyd, Welcome to the Machine. Welcome to the Machine. Yeah. yeah you listen to the song. It's a really good song. If you don't know it, it's, 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 it's a little dark, but uh, it's super, it's super intense. I like it a lot. I still listen I, to it, even though I'm not part of the machine, uh, although we sort of are. But anyway. We sort of are. But uh, I, I, I want to piggyback on it. I think that's really, I think that's an interesting perspective. It's a great question. Um uh, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to speak from the dark side here on that a little bit. I think the first thing you have to understand with that kind of question or, 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 or issue is the software uh, development lifecycle. Um, you design before you build. Uh, you don't build before you design. And if you talk to those one tool guys before.
before you actually design. Yeah, they're going to be talking about their expertise. There was a, a comment earlier about the cloud and saying that mm-hmm. it was an individual that wanted to be a cloud uh, consultant. Which one? You know, are you are you going to be Azure? Are you going to go that route? You know, you almost have to pick your tool and sharpen it. And I love the idea of not picking tools and just learning everything that I possibly can. Uh, but you're going to be limited because you can't know it all. And so, you know, you you then have to look at that and say, am I going to go with Amazon? Am I going to go Azure? Am I going to am I going to be an expert at one or the other? Am I going to go Google Cloud? And there's there's some others that are emerging. I think even Apple is trying. But but where am I going to put my you know flag in the sand there? And then you become that one tool, right? But the problem with it is, you know, from an architecture perspective, we had a lot of talks about you know architecture. You need to do that work first. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you need to understand what you're trying to accomplish first. And that has to be independent. That has to not really be uh, corroded with um, um, experts that only know one thing. And then they kind of say, well, you know, if you chose this software, you know, you're not ready for that conversation yet, right? You're still in a space where you're trying to figure out what makes the most sense for my organization. What am I trying to accomplish? Almost like if I'm trying to build a custom application, um, I, I just want to kind of go through the design of what's what skills I need before I go to the marketplace and then say, OK, I need somebody that can do this language or that language or has expertise in this thing or that. Right. I kind of need to plan that out first. So the independence is huge in the front end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a requirement on the on the front end. Right. And then after, you know then you can kind of go about choosing the right one skill guy. And yeah, they'll sell themselves into it and, and you're listening to it, but you're listening to it from the perspective of, I know I need this skill. I know I want that skill. And you've already made that determination uh, from an independent design that you've, uh, that you've structured. Yeah. And, and that's why we always like to have, you know, those perspectives from understanding our vendor partners as well. Um, and Clive, you always kind of provide that dichotomy to Eric's disruptor over here, Pink Floyd against the machine. Um, so I, I think that's the important part of it. Um, and I'm glad that you brought this one up. Fernando, actually, not to call him out, but he reached out to me on LinkedIn. Actually, last night we had a conversation about how as a, you know, as a younger person in your career and getting to these bigger four or um, agencies, can can be challenging because they you know they throw a ton of money at you and offer you know a, a real stable type of work environment. So I wonder what you guys would say to someone in um, that might be fresh out of college, um, just right out of kind of the graduate area going into the workforce that's interested in digital transformation, but doesn't quite know how to do what you're saying, Khalid, to kind of pick a tool, pick a skill set. They just don't have the background or the experience. What are some things that they could do? Um, and I'll just give Fernando complete props right here. He's reaching out to people in the industry. He's joining live streams. He's understanding what that looks like as far as his career. And I think that's so important to kind of join that conversation. But with you two, I, I, I kind of want to get your perspective. So let's start with you, Eric. I know you you work with a lot of young people and um, our moderators can pop actually some of our college student content in the chat here so you can kind of see how Eric works with that kind of younger workforce. Um, but understanding what that, that looks like, I think is, is so important, especially for our emerging workforce in the independence area. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one thing I think I always encourage college kids or recent college graduates to think about 
is to think about what your strengths are. You know, you may not have a ton of experience, but let's think about what your strengths are and what transferable strengths you have. One of the biggest things, at least when we're hiring at, at third stage, one of the big advantages that a recent college graduate has is they haven't been jaded by the machine. They haven't been you know, biased by the machine. They haven't been part of it yet. And so there's, you don't have those sort of bad habits or myopic views of the world that you have to try and change, which is really difficult with a really experienced consultant. So I think you have to look at, well, that's a, that's, that's a plus, right? You've got, you've got a fresh set of eyes, a fresh perspective as a younger, newer person to consulting. Um, and then also, you know, look to, you know, what, either what you studied in school or what extracurricular activities you're involved with or internships that you've been involved with that might provide some skills that are transferable. So things that, uh, demonstrates that you are a good communicator, a good listener. Um, I always, you know, I always look for people to one, two things that catch my eye on a resume that sound like they have nothing to do with consulting, but I think they do is someone who uh, was involved in athletics and or coaching. So that's part of, you know, what I think makes Khalid such a good consultant is he, he was a competitive collegiate athlete and now he's a coach and he just has a different mentality about teamwork and communication and things of that nature. Um, but the other uh, thing on top of that is people that have worked in semi-intense customer service situations, like people that have waited tables or, you know, mm -hmm. been a server at a restaurant or customer service reps, people that have been under fire, presumably from angry customers and mm -hmm. have to have a relatively high emotional EQ to be able to deal with that. Those are skills that are really hard to teach. You know, I can't, tr I can't, you know, for example, me, myself as a leader, I, I don't know how to teach someone to, to listen more right. and to deal with angry customers and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. unless you've been through it. And so, you know, you may think that has nothing to do with it, but if you've been a server at a restaurant or whatever, you know, talk about how that applies to consulting. And then, you know, of course, if you can get an internship that has some sort of relevance to consulting or digital transformation in general, whether it's a technical role or a, you know, a process improvement role, maybe you're part of a change team or whatever the case may be. That, for example, is how I really got my foot in the door in consulting is I just, I really just stumbled across a, an internship at in my school when I was getting my, my master's degree, my, my MBA, it was a CIO at a local company, a manufacturing company. They were implementing Oracle and they wanted an intern to come in and help redesign business processes. And I, I didn't care about the technology piece or ERP at that time. All I cared about was that I really liked supply chain and operations and that was my focus. And so I dove into that, but then I learned to enjoy technology and I, I realized how important that that process improvement background that I developed in that year long internship that's what got me in the door at PwC and led me to be angry listening to Pink Floyd, Welcome to the Machine, so, and eventually to third stage to get to where we are today. I, I, I really like the customer service um, experience piece there. And it's, it, it seems like it may sound like left field for, for some in the audience, um, but you have to understand that the first most basic skill that you'll need in consultant to have any in consultancy to have any kind of success is the trust advisor relationship. Once that is broken, once I mean you walk on a job, you either have all the credibility in the world for whatever reason, you know, you they might have talked you up or whatever, or you have zero credibility, right? You walk in mm -hmm. and everyone's looking at you sideways, like who is this individual? Mm -hmm. Do they know anything? Right. So from there, whether you're starting with 100 or you're starting at zero, you have to build credibility. And mm -hmm. part of how you go about the process of building that credibility are some of those same skills that are demonstrated with someone on the service on the server side. It's the little things. It's the 
did you bring my drink back? You said you were going to bring my drink back. And, you know, they didn't walk off. And it just makes you just, it puts you in a whole nother mode. Like all of a sudden it's like, I don't have a drink. Like, what are you doing? You know, did you get my order right? Like, like, who are you? You know, it just breaks everything else down just because they said, oh, I'll be right back with a drink. And an hour later they didn't. So it's that little break right there that just disrupted the entire experience. And that's what happens on the field in, in, in consulting. You have to constantly build up those small wins, mm -hmm. those little things that sort of, you know, put the client at ease, like, you know, saying they're a part of what they say they're going to do, they're going to do, they do well. Um, it, it turns into this sort of just conversation. You become a part of their staff, an, extended, an extension of, of their staff, and then they start to trust you. And that's where the consulting really happens and begins and runs. So it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it's very important to be able to manage relationships, mm -hmm. to build on relationships when you're kind of going into these engagements. And the way you can start, I mean, you can start with whatever skill you have. If you're finance, I started, my, my consulting career really started because I had a financial background. I knew accounting. And so I, I, I started working there. Um, um, but it doesn't really matter what you start with. You can bring into that space, you know, anything across, you know, it, because all the, there's always going to be a need for a consultant to, 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 to do various aspects. So you can bring what you already have and know. But no matter what, you have to manage relationships and you have to build credible relationships because i've been on jobs where it has fallen apart i've been on jobs where i've been able to maintain it well and that's the biggest takeaway for me is is just making sure that that's always in place yeah and i think a lot of times to your point Cleed, people overcomplicate the relationship side of it right, right, it's really right. just being someone that can be trustworthy that is authentic <laughs> that's able to sit in that room and have that conversation, it really doesn't matter if you have 50 years of experience or five. Just being able to have that trust um, in that client relationship is so important. And just, just real quick, I see many of you kind of self-promoting in the comments here, which I absolutely love, um, <laughs> which is great. So we are hiring actively at Third Stage. We do it a, a little different as we um, match skill sets with our culture and our clients as opposed to kind of just numbers and resumes. Um, if you are interested at working at Third Stage or joining our team or having that conversation about who we are, you can email work at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our careers page on our website and um, input a form that way too. Uh, so please uh, include your resume and a little bit about your understanding of kind of the third stage approach helps us see if, if you're a good match. Um, so thank you for, you know, your engagement and passion about joining this, this team um, as well that we're all obviously super passionate about. Um, so I, I want to kind of shift gears still on the same lines of, of going into digital transformation careers, but what if you're a seasoned professional? Um, for example, I had a a teacher reached out to me the other day on, on LinkedIn talking about how they wanted to transition from teaching into organizational change management and business communications, again, along those coaching lines. What advice would you give to someone who's making that shift into their career who might already have a background in other things? And, and Cleve, let's start with, with you this time. Oh, it, it's, I mean, sometimes you have to sell it. I, I, I do think that there is a lot of sales that that happens in the consulting space. And sometimes you have to sell your skill. Um, but something like teaching is insanely valuable. Uh, I, I, one of my uh, friends um, you know, got into consulting that way, just was a master's in education, just a, just a teacher's teacher. 
and they were able to build curriculums for um, uh, these kind of software applications and and kind of build these books that they were able to kind of pass on to clients and sort of really sort of build out this learning curve and they were flying all over the place and and it was this full curriculum that they were able to do who's, who's going to do a curriculum better than a teacher right mm -hmm. i mean they 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 know it like the back of their their hand like how do they sort of educate a someone who doesn't know kind of where they're going with that particular uh, curriculum every software company needs that particular skill so it's it's something as it, consulting is everything so mm -hmm. long as you're an expert at something, right, there's going to be a tie for that, I think, in the business world. It's just a matter of where. You may not necessarily know where, but uh, certainly something like teaching in the organizational change space is ginormous. And, and I think they need more, to be, to be honest, mm -hmm. because the people that are doing this curriculum work right now aren't teachers. You know, the people that are doing um, the education side or the training aspects, and it's one as what's one thing that we are sensitive to in the, in the field mm -hmm. is kind of really having those conversations about what is your training plan need to look like, making mm -hmm. sure that it's adequate, because uh, you know you you, you really want to make sure that the staff is not just comfortable with the the um, the, uh, the, the the software that is being implemented, but that they are well trained and that they feel mm -hmm. empowered by it, right? And, and that really happens, I think, with a solid training plan, solid curriculums and, and the likes. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, I don't see a lot of them often, certainly from um, a lot of the software companies that are sort of you know rolling their softwares out. Absolutely. And that knowledge transfer and overall user adoption yeah. is, is one of the ways that we often see a lack of benefits realization and right. business value, right, around software. It's it, You could buy the coolest, shiniest, most beautiful software in the world, but if your organization doesn't know how to use it or leverage it or is scared of it, then you're not going to actually um, feel that ROI, which is ultimately, you know, the goal of, of new technology. So very, very good point. What about what about you, Eric? What what advice would you give to someone who might be in in a midst of a different career that wants to shift over to consulting? Well, I think you have an advantage in that you have some experience and some of that experience is highly likely to be relevant to consulting. So if you think about someone who, for example, you know, is an internal supply chain or procurement clerk or, you know, whatever they worked in supply chain or procurement or, you know, some other business function. I'd really highlight that and say, you know, you know, supply chain really well, or, you know, finance and accounting really well, whatever the area is, because the reality of the industry, despite the works that I've, I've sort of railed on here are, are really hammered today in today's conversation. The reality is that's how the industry is built. It's built on specialization and it's built on deep knowledge, either in a functional area and or a specific technology. So if you have deep experience in a functional area, highlight that because that's, that's going to be a strength and that's going to catch someone's eye in the industry. The other thing is the technology too. If you're, even if you're just a user of a, of a leading ERP system, that's, that's big. And I would put that on your resume and highlight that because there's, you know, if you use Microsoft Dynamics, for example, or SAP S4 HANA, whatever the system is, if you're a user of that and you know the system fairly well, better than, you know, the average new consultant straight out of college, then you what you would want to highlight that and say, you understand, you know, the order to cash process within SAP or whatever. Um, so really highlighting those and bumping those things to the top of your resume, you know, sort of like key skills and competencies that you have. And again, it goes back to what I'd say to college, recent college graduates too, is instead of worrying so much about what you don't have, mm -hmm. it's, it's a matter of really looking at, you know, maybe limited, it may not be 
um, as deep as someone who's been in consulting for 20 or 30 years, but you probably have some unique experiences that are different from a, a lifelong consultant like myself. I don't understand what it's like to be an internal IT team member. I, I just don't have that perspective because I've never done it. But if you have, highlight that I and mean, really and showcase that because I think that's going to be a big differentiator potentially in the marketplace. So um, that's another type of person we like to hire someone who has some experience, maybe never done consulting, but they've got these transferable relevant skills as well. And so I think it's a matter of just identifying what those are and, and really highlighting that in your in your CV or your, your resume. Absolutely. And even, you know, um, technology natives, early adopters, you know, what platforms have you used? I mean, we can't all be TikTok famous like Eric is, but, you know, we can still have, you know, that that knowledge of platforms and, and I'll speak to all of those kind of non-technical um, people in the digital transformation space. There is space for creatives and communicators within that too. Um, I recently wrote a blog. I'll shout out to the moms, right? I have a two-year-old and a three-year-old, but how moms make the best project managers because they have a lot of adversity <laughs> that they need to kind of overcome. So there's room for that experience that might not be kind of exactly in those categories that you see as the quote unquote traditional digital transformation consultant. Um, the industry is changing. It's really exciting. We're here chatting with Kyler and Khalid from the third stage team talking about careers in digital transformation in 2023 and beyond. We have a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. I'm here with Khalid and Kyler talking about digital transformation careers in 2023 and beyond. Let's get back to it. I want to um, go back to our audience and bring up uh, a question here from Malcolm, kind of a comment and a question. Um, and he kind of talked about, from my consultancy experience, the worst experience is when a client has been sold the wrong software or module. One um, consulting consultancy manager I had worked with had a good solution to this. If sales had sold something and the consultancy could not deliver, they asked sales to come back and demonstrate how to get it to work or not on site. So just kind of evolving this question a little bit, this is a key competency to a good consultant is selecting a solution, listening to the client about their needs and requirements. Building on this, what are some other key competencies or skill sets that a consultant needs to have when advising on a new software or a technical tool? Because um, I think this is a really important aspect of that um, and staying true to the overall client's goals and objective as a business. So Eric, let's kind of start with you on this one to see if you can uh, kind of take us through what that looks like from a, a real life example perspective. Yeah, so I, I think the 
the key here is, you know, if you have, first of all, if you have that objective view and you're not, you're not coming in with, again, the right answer up front, that's going to give you an open mind and you're going to be more open to alternatives to just a one size fits all, you know, technology solution. The, the other thing that I think this question gets to is the fact that, you know, most of the time during evaluation processes, you have a sales rep who is clearly incentivized to sell the software. So their, their leading answer to most questions is going to be yes. You know, can your software do A, B, or C? They're conditioned to say, yes, it can. It may not do it well, but it can do it, right? It's, it's, and that's, that's the gray area that often gets missed is, you know, most ERP systems or technologies that are designed for a certain type of function can meet, you know, most clients' business requirements to some degree, but the, there's a gray area there of, well, it can do it, but, but how well can it do it? And so having, first of all, a broad knowledge of different technologies in the space, as well as having tool sets that provide some objective data. And one of the problems with the industry, again, um, I don't want to beat up our own industry too much. I've done plenty of that here so far today, but I'll do it again um, because it's important. But if you look at even like Gartner and Forrester, you look at Gartner, Gartner in particular, they're a huge industry analyst firm. A lot of CIOs and internal organizations rely on Gartner's magic quadrants and analysis of the industry, um, which is fine. That's, that's a data point, but you have to understand software vendors commission those studies. And mm -hmm. so you're getting a third, you're getting a false sense of third party validation of how awesome a certain technology is when the software vendor just paid Gartner to put out that magic quadrant where they're in the top right corner and they're awesome. They're the best things in sliced bread. And so, but then you think, well, what, what other options do I have? I've got Gartner, I've got the software sales rep, who else am I going to turn to? And that's where you look to, you know, independence or independent resources like third stage. But more specifically, we have a database that we use that tracks specific business requirements, about 30,000 different business requirements against several hundred different enterprise technologies. And it doesn't just track whether or not software can do something, it tracks how well software can do it. And that's really a key thing because in this question here from Malcolm, it sounds like sales sold a bill of goods. It said, yes, our software can do this. And and they convince them of it, but then the delivery team comes in and says, we don't even know, you know, we don't know how to make it do what the client wants it to do. And that could have been a breakdown in that um, lack of independence or that lack of objective assessment of that technology and its ability to fit those needs. So I think that it goes back to the, the objective and technology unbiased view of the world that's so important. Absolutely. Um, and, and Khalid, this is what you do on a daily basis, right? So this is kind of, you know, what... Yeah. Um, what you manage and lead here at, at Third Stage. So very curious to hear kind of your opinion and thoughts. I, I, I think, you know, it's a dirty business. I get that. That happens all the time. I mean, I can't explain how many. I, I've had a lot of big four uh, experience uh, over the course of my mm -hmm. career. And so I've, I've done a lot of implementations um, on that stage. And I don't know if I remember one where I felt like this is a great application for what it is that they're doing. I think in all instances, it was just what in the world, who, who decided to do this? Like, and, 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 and in the field, it was constantly because consulting, it, this is all about solving problems. I mean, they're trying on the sales side, they're trying to solve problems on the delivery side, they're trying to solve problems. And uh, the problems that, you know, you know, we're trying to solve on the delivery side when you have this application that really isn't a good fit for 
um, uh, the problems that an organization may be dealing with or the requirements is you, you start doing these gymnastics of, you know, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to adjust this thing? How are we? And it becomes these small kind of rooms where everyone's kind of sitting around, like, how are we going to do this? They're designing up different constructs to sort of beat up the software to do things it essentially cannot do. I think it all goes back to in the very, very beginning, you kind of need a level of independence, a level of of a vision for how this whole thing is going to work. Then you fit the parts into that vision. And, and when you don't do that, I think you open the door to kind of being on the other side, right? Where you, you have a reactive delivery cycle. And, and I think that's where the, the, the negative is. That's where you see all the problems with the machine, if you will, uh, where, where you have the, a bunch of delivery consultants trying to react to problems that really they shouldn't be reacting to, right? Or, 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 or something worse, right? Where you have implementations that fail um, or they just are poor fits and kind of turns into this legal issue. We do a lot of expert witness and just kind of reading through the cases and, and situations that we're coming across. It's just problem after problem. A lot of the times you're thinking, why did they decide to go in this direction in the first place was a great salesman. Uh, so you can't get caught up in sales. I, I think you need to get more so visionary with what it is your business needs, where, what direction that your business is going and start to paint the picture before your technical resources even step through the door. And, and, and that way you have a clear perspective around um, who should be coming through the door, what it is that you'll need, um, uh, you know, what they'll be doing, now, where they need to connect with other aspects of your organization to really fit it the way you need it to be. And it starts to be, I think, an architecture that really supports your business model, right? Versus you're trying to, you trying to take your business model and fit it to a architecture that, that doesn't really, that's more standard and, and doesn't really support. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. That, that, that core ability to be aligned and have a plan around your business goals. What are you trying to achieve with this, this new tool or software? Um, is is so key. And as Khalid mentioned, we do do a ton of expert witness work and hopefully a digital transformation project will never get to that point where, <laughs> you know, it's in, involving litigation. Um, but Eric and some of our other expert witnesses do testify because that's how bad it can get when you don't select a tool or you don't have, more importantly, that cohesive approach between all of the different parties working on your digital transformation and that dedication to that strategic alignment. Um, and most importantly, the quality assurance around that. And that's a lot what we do here at Third Stage is come in as kind of that PMO type of resource that continues to keep the project on track and all of the different agendas on in check. So that's something that we've seen as emerging work, especially in the last couple years since starting third stage, a true need in the industry. Um, so I, I want to ask a question from Sam Graham here, because I think this is a very interesting question. Um, he talks about, is there an advantage to working first with that small outfit or more boutique agency like third stage, or should you go into more targeted jobs? And I think this is an interesting question because both of you bring learnings from the that bigger agency background and really have that awareness and understanding about what you wanted out of your career or what you wanted to provide as value to your clients. So what would what would be your overall recommendation? And before I turn it over to you, Khalid, 
I'm just going to say Sam Graham is a top thought leader in the ERP and digital transformation space. We're all huge fans of him. If you are interested, I highly recommend connecting with him and, and asking him questions in this space too. One of these days, we're shameless plug here. We're going to get him on. <laughs> we're starting it. We're going to start a social media campaign to pressure yeah. Sam Graham to be on yeah, this live right? stream. We're, we're going to make it happen somehow, Sam. <laughs> get, get on the pod stream, Sam. I think it's a I think it's a great question though. And for me, there is no answer to it, to, to, to be frank. I'll tell you my experience, which was actually uh coming through a small outfit. Eric actually brought me into the consulting space. Um, I then sort of branched off and went into um uh other companies, um, you know, big four groups, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm back um working with Eric now, but 20 years. 15 years later, not to date ourselves, but um, <laughs> but uh, I, I say that because my experience and, and obviously you guys have a sense of what Eric's perspective is. He's had the same perspective and really pioneered um, um, independence in, in, in this space, and he has contaminated my mind with that. So because I worked You're with welcome, Eric early, <laughs> because I worked with Eric in that small outfit, when I started to branch off and kind of go into the machine, if you will, I always, I never wanted to be connected to one application. I always wanted to learn other models that are out there. I, I, I brought in that sort of small independent perspective into kind of these more structured patterns that sort of exist in, in consulting. And for me, it was extremely healthy. So for me, I, I'd probably lean on the side of kind of it's okay to kind of work with an outfit and kind of get some particulars whether it's methodology or whether it's um kind of that kind of perspective and then bring it into the bigger consulting world right but but the, because the dangers of living in that big consultant world first is you know unless you're you know a raging independent like um like eric is you start to sort of get real narrow into the you know into the this is the best way to go about it right whether it's one that one tool mentality because that's kind of what happens when you go into the big um uh, the bigger outfits as you get into that specialization that the, that the field naturally pushes you into and it's it it, it can work against you later and um, think about the perspective of um, you're, you've spent 15 years on a particular application, and then all of a sudden that application has been discontinued. Like, where's your career go from there, right? So being a specialist is good, but it's important that you think beyond just one particular tool. And when you work with those big outfits, that's kind of where they push you. So the other thing the too, road. is just the, the breadth of background you get versus the the structure and the focus. So, you know, if you go to a big consulting firm, the advantages are that you're in a highly structured environment. It's, it's set up to where you, you can't fail. Even if you try, you can't really fail or harm a client or not. I shouldn't say harm a client, but you can't really fail as a consultant on a team because there's so many safeguards in place to, to ensure that doesn't happen, which can be good. If you're starting out, you, you've got a safety net, you've got a lot of support, a lot of structure. Um, but you're sort of pigeonholed, you know, early on, you're sort of put into a little box mm -hmm. and you need to stay in that box. And that's part of how they pr ensure that you don't fail is because you're in your box. You're not, you're not uh, getting ahead of your skis or anything like that. Um, the, the advantage of working at a smaller firm, or it could be a disadvantage depending on your personality and what you're trying to do. But the advantage, in my opinion, is that the smaller firm is going to have less structure. It's more entrepreneurial and you get a, a broader view of consulting. 
uh, you're not forced into a box. But that can be stressful for some people because they want to be in a box. They want to ease into it. They want the structure. They want the really solid support system. And I don't want to suggest companies like us at Third Stage, we're not supportive. We are supportive, but we just don't have the structure mm-hmm. and the you know some of that infrastructure that that can provide some of that that perceived safety. So I think a lot of it comes down to what you want. I mean, and in, in back into what Khalid was saying too, and in, in using his background and my background as an example, you don't have to pick one and stick with it forever. I mean, you might decide, oh, okay, I'll start mm-hmm. off at a big firm and then go to a small firm or vice versa. You know, do what Khalid did. You could start off at a independent or a smaller firm and then go work for one of the bigger guys. Um, it, it just really depends on, on what you do. There's a lot of turnover at the big consulting firms. Most mm-hmm. people don't last more than two years, uh, which is about what I lasted. And I can say with 100% certainty, if I wasn't doing technology agnostic consulting now, I would not be a consultant right now. I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be consulting. Um, so, you know, it's just a matter of what it is you like and what, what's important to you, you know, in your yeah, career. You'd be a Pink Floyd groupie, definitely. Totally. For sure. I, or a DJ or right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Maybe but an Uber driver. Kind of, I don't know. But so many options. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to round that out with just basic career advice, it sounds like that awareness in what works for you. And that understanding of what you want professionally and what your values and integrity are in dedication to the organization. Um, And then also that gratitude for what you learned from organizations that might not have matched that, but you were able to harvest a lot of really core skills out of that to build on your career. Um, Yeah. One thing I would add to really quickly, Kyler, just in the interest of time, I know we're trying to wrap up here, but one thing I want to add to what you just said in building on another point you made uh, that was really important, but I feel like it's worth highlighting is you talked about being a mom and how you've learned so much about project management in that case. And we've talked about Khalid and how he's learned about, you know, how coaching is applied to his consulting background. But I think that's the other thing is, you you know, it's, it's a sensitive thing to talk about because in the United States and some other countries, it's, it's highly sensitive and sometimes illegal to ask questions about your life situation, but there's things in your life situation that probably could make you a good you know, digital transformation team member, whether it's coaching, being a mom, if you have a blue collar background and you just are used to hard work or a military background, that's another thing that we notice a correlation between work ethic and willingness to roll up their sleeves and get the job done. So if you, you look at things like that too, and really build on those and, and be, I, I use the word gratitude. I'd be, I'd be proud of it. I'd go a step further and say, you should be proud of that and highlight those things and say, I was in the military. Here's what I learned about things that are relevant to digital transformation. I may have never done it, but I have done things that a lot of people haven't done. So whether it's military or being a parent or a coach or whatever, I mean, look to your your unique background and try and leverage that and, and highlight those strengths. I think that's really important. All right. Thank you, Khalid. Thank you, Kyler. Great conversation. A lot of good lessons there. A lot of stuff we didn't cover. We could have spent hours talking about that, but that's a good start to providing some guidance and advice on how to start your digital transformation career or how to pivot your transformation career in 2023 and beyond. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Kyler and I will debrief on some of the key points in that conversation. And later in the show too, we'll have uh, our case study on food and beverage uh, in digital transformation. So be sure to stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, Turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, 
Our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. You can find new episodes of our show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. So be sure to check us out there and subscribe to the show. And uh, so, Kyler, we just had uh, you, Khalid, and I were talking about transformation careers. What what are some of your takeaways or, or lessons from that conversation? Well, I mean, I think it's it's like we said, there there really is opportunity for a variety of skill sets. And I think that's a common misconception when it comes to specifically IT consulting is that you really do need hard technical skills. And I, I really just feel like it's a beautiful evolution to kind of bring in those communicators, those business analysts, those, you know, a different types of, of focuses into the digital transformation space because there is a need there. Um, for being able to do that. So whether you're you're coming out of college and you're super green, or if you've been in a different career and you bring, um, you know, a different perspective to the table, the industry is really diversified in the fact that there are needs in, in many different areas um, that people can bring to the table. And I, I think that that's just such a, a positive movement because it it gives more value to our clients in the fact that we are able to bring a more diverse um, perspective to the table. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's also a reminder that, you know, even though I'm a bit biased and I think the technology independent agnostic model is superior to other models. I mean, the, the good news is even if, whether you agree or disagree with that statement, there's lots of opportunities in the digital transformation space. I mean, you could be, you know, an I, an internal IT person, you could be part of a transformation team internally, you could be a consultant that helps clients through their digital transformations. You could specialize in the technical aspects of one specific software. You could be more of a functional generalist. I mean, there's just so many different avenues you can pursue. That's part of what makes this field interesting and fun, but also overwhelming at times too. Yeah. And I, and I love the piece about, um, about customer service that you kind of mentioned, whether you've worked in retail um, you know, food and beverage, the service industry, the military, and, you know, in those those types of situations where you may have um, a, a high stress or, or um, a situation in which you kind of need to monitor and maintain a client relationship or a customer relationship, those baseline skills can go really far when it comes to consulting, especially, you know, if you establish them um, at a young age uh, and being able to grow them and understand what that means in a professional environment. You know, I, I love how you kind of peppered that in there to just remind people that that brings a lot of value too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've hired some more junior people in particular, in particular over the last, you know, 15 years or so that didn't have a ton of experience on paper as far as, you know, direct experience in consulting or IT or whatever, but they had pretty deep uh, or extensive background working through college in the service industry. That, you know, there's a lot of value there. And I think you're right that 
a lot of times, especially when you're in college and you're being told, you know, all the things that all the skills you need to develop and you've got this big wide open field, like digital transformation, it, it could get overwhelming, but if you can really focus on what those things are, that tra are transferable. Um, I, I find that more often than not, a lot of resumes that I look at, especially once I get to know the person behind the resume, they understate some of those, those skills and not, not all organizations are going to value service industry, for example, or military the same way we do. But I think even if they don't necessarily, you can, you can sell it as something that in your resume, your cover letter, your outreach to people, you can sell it as, you know, explain to them why it is relevant, even if that's not something they're looking for. So I think that's a, you know, way to take charge of your career growth and development for sure. And I know you've mentioned in some of our content that certifications can kind of be tough. You know, some are really good, some are bad, or I shouldn't say bad, but some can cause bad habits like biases or something like that, or kind of pigeonhole you into one specific tool set. If you were out in the marketplace today as more of a, I'm wanting to establish yourself in the digital transformation space, what are some certifications, some additional education training courses that you would undergo or that you've seen to be really successful? You mean in addition to the awesome content that Third Stage uh, puts out on a daily basis? Well, obviously, um, I was trying to lay that up for you. I mean, I am the right. marketing director, <laughs> so that was what I was going for. But um, obviously, our, our content, we put out a, a ton for free. You put out a ton for free in the fact that you just want to bring that message to the overall industry. Um, but if I am fresh out of school, would you go get um, a Microsoft Dynamics certification? Would you go get a, a third-party supply chain certification? Or how would you kind of navigate that? And how valuable are those on a resume? Well, I think it, it definitely doesn't hurt. Um, so if you, you know, if your goal is to be a change management consultant and you go get ProSci certified, that can be a nice addition to a bachelor's degree or whatever your educational background is. Um, and then if you can layer on top of that, some sort of internship where you get some direct experience, even if you're doing it for cheap or for free, you're not getting paid much to do it potentially that can pay dividends later uh, by doing that. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to answer whether or not I'd go get certified in one system because that is what I did. You know, back in the day I got certified in SAP and that's just not because I wanted to necessarily. In fact, I did not want to. Um, but PwC, PwC made me, for lack of a better word, they, they forced me to get certified because it was such a big part and still is mm -hmm. a big part of what PwC does. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings on it. I didn't like, I didn't like it at the time. I didn't want to get pigeonholed as an SAP guy, and I've successfully dodged that bullet by. But I had to start a company that was agnostic to dodge that bullet. Um, but I think, on the other hand having that hands-on experience and really understanding how a specific ERP system works and really understanding the nuts and bolts that has come, you know, that's been extremely valuable in my career. So I, I feel like I can just speak to how ERP systems work, even though I'm not certified, it's not an active certification. Now technology's changed quite a bit and I'm not doing configuration like I used to, or, or I did at one point. So, um, it, it does give a good foundation for sure. And, and if you're a technical person and that's what you want to do, by all means, go get certified or, you know, go learn a certain system. You know, there's a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of systems out there that have a bright future. You know, SAP is one of them, Microsoft, Dynamics, um, Oracle, um, Cloud, Oracle NetSuite, a lot of different ones. So I, I think just maybe carefully choosing which one you focus on. I think that that could be an important decision too. And then of course, supply chain, I think supply chain process improvement, that's an important skill set. So if you can go get certified in uh, 
um, Apex or, you know, one of those supply chain based organizations that that could be helpful. So anything you can do to round out your resume is really important. And today's day and age with all the free content floating around and relatively cheap uh, training courses, they're online. I mean, it's easier than ever to get some sort of experience or exposure uh, that you might not have otherwise gotten in college or elsewhere. Yeah, one thing I, I didn't mention in the hot topics is actually here in the U.S. Northwestern University has waived all standardized testing fee for any technology worker that has recently been laid off. We've kind of seen a large amount of layoffs um, in the technical field, especially for bigger tech tech companies. Uh, but I, th- I think that's something to just, you know, always consider is, is what, what you can do to educate yourself. That doesn't have to be a formal education. It doesn't have to be higher education. It doesn't have to break the bank. But the fact is you can be a constant learner and continue to understand kind of what lights you up and what you're passionate about. So that way you can bring that passion into serving clients or, or serving an organization. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For certain. I think that's a, a great point. Well, that's good stuff. And and one thing we mentioned, or or you mentioned in the discussion, that if you are interested in a career at Third Stage in particular, you can uh, email us at work at Third Stage, T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting dot com. And that that email goes to our chief operating officer and our recruiting team. And certainly, you know, you can reach out to Kyler and I on LinkedIn if you're you're looking for advice or you want to, you know, if you you get our attention effectively, we we could potentially float your your interest to the top of the, uh, to the top of the queue, especially if you're in geographically, if you're in one of the regions where we have offices. So if you're in North America, if you're in, uh, Australia, Hong Kong, um, South Africa, um, certainly Europe, Western Europe, uh, particularly the UK, uh, if you're in any of those regions, that's sort of where we've got a footprint, uh, a physical presence. So if you're in one of those regions, that tends to get our attention more so than, than some of the ones where we're not yet, but, um, but yeah, so feel, feel free to, to, forward on your resume and reach out to us on LinkedIn if you want to connect and and learn more about the company. So uh, we'll take a quick break and we're going to get to our third segment here in just a moment. We're going to play a clip, uh, an interview that you had, Kyler, that's a pretty deep dive into food and beverage. It's a food and beverage case study with one of our clients uh, based out of APAC. We're going to have Wayne Holtham on the show or in the clip that we play for you, Wayne Holtham, who's been on the show before, uh, but he's our head. He's the head of our third stage APAC office. He's based out of Australia. And uh, he covers the entire Asia Pacific area of our, our client base. And he's going to talk about a, a, a food and beverage case study for one of our clients. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll return with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. A 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. New episodes every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms, as well as LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Be sure to check us out. And uh, for this last segment, we thought we'd play you a clip of a deep dive case study into food and beverage. It's with one of our clients, or it's regarding one of our clients who will remain nameless in the conversation, but we'll play you this clip to talk about uh, the food and beverage industry and a digital transformation we're helping them through at the moment. So with that, let's go ahead and roll the clip of Kyler, you talking to Wayne Holtham out of our third stage APAC office about food and beverage case study. I'll turn it over to you, Wayne, to kind of just give us a little bit of an introduction about your background and your experience within digital transformation, specifically in, in the food and beverage arena. Oh, thanks, Kyler. It's uh, good to be here. And uh, yeah, nice that we can, uh, we can talk about uh, food and beverage. Uh, my background, I've, I've probably spent uh, the last 20 odd years in different stages of food and beverage in the sense that I uh, worked as a, a production manager a, um, in, a, in a food and beverage manufacturing organisation. Uh, in later years, I've consulted and we've delivered uh, different platforms into um, food and beverage organisations and, uh, and been a supplier. So I spent a number of years with suppliers that actually uh, supplied the food and beverage organisations. So, so supply chain and those sort of things uh, are important as well as the manufacturing component, the distribution piece that, uh, that uh, go around uh, what a food and beverage organisation needs to actually be efficient. Absolutely. Well, we're so excited to learn from you today and kind of garner some best practices around food and beverage and digital transformation. Just to test out our chat feature here, if you could just drop in the chat wherever you're viewing, where you're joining us from today. We typically have a pretty global audience and we always like to see where our audience members are joining us from today. So if you could just pop that in the chat. Um, and Wayne, let's start off with what are some key nuances or considerations when going through a digital transformation, a software selection, technology implementation, if you are in the food and beverage space? Yeah, it's, it's interesting why food and beverage is slightly different. And, and the key focus for many uh, food, food manufacturers, food and beverage manufacturers, is to be able to look at um, their supply chains, to be able to uh, base their predicted production based on you know, what, what's coming in and what they can ship out. And so planning and scheduling and those sort of things are real strong focuses for, um, for food and beverage. And, the, and I suppose the other driving factor of that is food and beverage is traditionally low margin. So, so it doesn't attract the really, really high margin. So you've got to be good at what you do, uh, effective what you do, and make sure that you understand what the cost impacts are by some of the decisions that you make. And, and that's, that's a real, uh, I suppose, an, an underlying um, difference between uh, food and beverage in many other industries. That's a really good point. And speaking of margin and overall budgeting and cost, obviously an ERP implementation is a huge investment for any type of, of business, specifically food and beverage when we're talking about small to medium-sized businesses as well. So what are some cost considerations that you can utilize when you are in a food and beverage space or environment and considering selecting a new software? Well, it's, I suppose there's, there's the, the, the traditional way that people would look at uh, selecting a software, and that is, you know, many used SAP as their, as their platform, and that, that's one of the, because it's a finance package, and we would leverage off that finance package. Today, it's probably a little bit different in the sense that, you know, we've, we've caught up with the fact that not only have we finances, we have targeted solutions. And so, those, so that's, that's a way to be able to get something which is focused, 
and actually cost um, uh, cost effective to actually mm -hmm. deliver. Whereas, you know, if you try and make something do something that it shouldn't, there's a lot of cost that goes with that. And I think that's that's where we're starting to see the differences in the food and beverage area is that they are looking at how they operate, what they need to operate as against say, well, we've got finance. How do we bolt something on to be able to get our finances mm -hmm. to work? And, and that's that difference. And, and it obviously is adding up for uh, better outcomes and obviously savings when it comes to what sort of solution you're putting in. Absolutely. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. When, when you're looking at specifically a food and beverage system, you mentioned SAP, which obviously um, SAP S4HANA is, is a global, very complex um, system. What are some other specific systems or even applications that you've seen that are specific to the food and beverage industry? Yeah, we've, we've just been through actually a, a valuation exercise for two clients uh, that are in the food and beverage, uh, different sectors of the food and beverage, but mm -hmm. um, and, and and two that came to, to, to be high profile and really, really had uh, good coverage of the requirements was InfoM3 is, is one of those that's uh, uh, a well-credentialed uh, solution. Uh, Pronto is another one that uh, is, is actually it's an Australian-based um, uh, ERP that's that uh, covers lots of industries, but it really supports um, it supports food and beverage well, and it has a footprint in in the US. So so it is sold and, and used by clients in the US. So it's a global footprint, but it's actually an Australian um, software provider, which is which is rare. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, well, you know, you always have to to be loyal to your, you know, your your local countrymen, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, when they provide a good product, you don't mind. But you know, I, I'm I like to be fairly. Um, if it's a bad product, I wouldn't mention it. So. Oh no, absolutely. Um, you know that agnostic runs deep within within yes. you, Lane. Absolutely. So. Another kind of interesting piece that we've seen specifically in emerging technology with food and beverage is just the challenges in energy and supply chain. Um, so being kind of an expert in that supply chain and distribution with food and beverage, what are some ways in which you've seen your clients um, leverage emerging technologies to support that supply chain breakage or even energy crisis? I suppose there's two areas to it in, in that there's the energy area, which is how do we actually produce for the cheapest cost? And, and obviously we use a lot of energy when we are producing and manufacturing. Um, and so we want to be able to make sure that what we are saying we are going to produce, we are producing as such. We don't want holdups and we don't want delays because that just adds to the cost of what we're producing. So, you know, energy, things like gas, uh, LPG, uh, a lot of those feed energy costs are rising uh, rapidly here in Australia, and my understanding is across the globe. And so you've got to be efficient and effective in what you are saying you're going to produce so you can actually produce it for the price that you had estimated it would be mm -hmm. produced and you don't have any wastage. So that, there's that aspect to it. The other aspect is a supply chain piece, which is, which is probably globally has been a real problem for mm -hmm. all organisations. You know, supply chains have been broken in the sense that, you know, we've had delays, we can't get... Uh, uh, the supply chains to be efficient end to end, and so if we're sourcing in, uh, sourcing products from overseas or shipping products um, to overseas destinations, supply chain having visibility of supply chain is important. And so many times we buy products, 
And if mm-hmm. we don't have visibility of that actually coming in and being delivered in full or, or an understanding of the delays that might happen, whether it be shipping, whether it be road freight, whether it be weather events, whether it be those sorts of things, then it, it impacts our ability to produce what we're looking to produce. And so, um, so the visibility piece where you've got vendors and suppliers actually having that that knowledge and insight about what's happening from the end-to-end supply chain is one that's really important that um, a lot of food food manufacturers and, and beverage um, producers are actually looking for because um, why go ahead and look to produce something if you know it's not going to arrive and and you know and you run that risk of, produ- of having the line already and and you can't actually produce it so the cost of uh, of that production. Um, uh, that's waste as such in the end. So, so having, I suppose there's two areas to that. It's one of how much am I producing and am I mm-hmm. producing it as I said I would? And secondly, have I got visibility of what's coming in and can I use that? Because even if I've got perishable products, you mm-hmm. know, I might have the, the problem where if I've, if I've bought some perishable products but I'm also reliant on, um, on other products and they don't come in at the same time, then the problem I have is I can't produce. I can't produce right. the product I've got. And so the risk that I, I uh, have is that the perishable products might go off before I actually achieve mm-hmm. the other, um, uh, receive the other products. And so you can see it's a very complex. Um, food oh, yeah. manufacturing beverage has a lot of complexity to it. So with that complexity, I assume that an, a new technology implementation needs to be very, very intentional and mindful um, and strategic in going into these organizations, specifically with implementation in a food and beverage environment. And you mentioning those margins are not huge. So any sort of disruption to the business is obviously going to cost a lot of money um, and wasted revenue. So what are some tactics that you can actually use during implementation to make sure that you're hitting all of these complexities and you're not losing any money in any sort of breakage in go live? One of the areas that we really focus on is the planning and scheduling piece. And, and that's an integral part to getting good value out of your ERP because your ERP will provide you the information if you capture it. And so you can make good decisions based on that. So, so the, the, one of the key areas that we look at is how I can actually widen my window of understanding what's coming to me, what I'm going to produce, what, what people want to buy from me, so my demand. How do I widen that window? So by putting in forecasting and, and uh, accuracy of uh, you know, uh, what, what actually is supplied, um, and providing that visibility for the organisation, that allows them to actually, it's not reactionary anymore, it's we have a level of predictability. And, and it's, it's interesting that when we start to line up, you know, um, demand with, um, with manufacturing requirements, so MRP and those sorts of um, uh, terms or processes, and then what we're producing at the shop floor then we can actually get certainty on what we can distribute to, to our, um, to our um, customers. And, mm-hmm. and then we overlay that with our finances so we can actually plan. If we're purchasing this, we plan to produce this and distribute this, we would get paid for this. And so all of a sudden our financial planning comes together with that. And so it is all linked uh, together. Right. But working with organisations to understand it's not just finance, it's, it's making sure those other things align so we reduce the leakage that we have from inefficiency, and that's a um, that that and that works well in that uh, low margin space that uh, food and beverage is. 
Yeah. And it, it sounds like that target operating model and those business processes are going to be really key in achieving a successful digital transformation. So how, how do you help your clients define their target operating model in such a complex ecosystem? That's a great question because it's it's one that many overlook is how is our, how are we going to operate? And it sounds like a simple question, but uh, given any one business, they will operate that suits their competitive advantage in the market that they service. And so, so what we do is work with them to actually identify things called operating principles. So, so what are the principles that we want to adopt that we can actually see that would be delivered in a, in a digital transformation, whether it be process, whether it be the technology piece, whether it be the information that's available to us. And so by identifying that right at the start, really getting that understanding of operating model, how we're going to operate, we can then build a functional architecture for the, for the software. So we can say, what is it that we need? What modules do we need? How, how's this all going to fit together and actually provide us end-to-end -end process? And so when we start breaking it down in those segments, all of a sudden we start to be able to get the linkage between what the technology will give us and how we will operate. And, and that's, that's probably be the, has been the defining difference that we see with clients that once they get that right, they mm -hmm. really, really do, uh, they, they become really profitable uh, on the basis that they're taking away a lot of those, those gaps and leakages, as I call it, uh, of, of efficiency, which, which costs, it's a cost to the, to the business and such. And so um, by getting that right, then, then when they actually deliver the solution at the end of the day, they can say, it actually operates as we wanted it to operate. And so I get value out of the solution I've purchased. And, uh, and, and then I can just continuously improve how I operate uh, because I've got good information available to me. Absolutely. And, and that excess, which you, you, you know, rightly, rightfully defined as cost, when you have a broken or inefficient process, so identifying that sounds like it's, you know, a, a key tactic to ensuring that you're able to address, strategize, and ultimately resolve that issue. And I know when you're an expert in process mining, which you help a lot of our clients go through, um, our food and beverage clients, those types of, of different things, how specifically can you utilize process mining to identify any sort of broken processes to fix for that target operating model? Yeah, and, and processes are the basis of, of, um, of you know, what we're looking to achieve here because if we have a broken process, we don't get that efficiency. So process mining is about looking at how many times people don't use the system to actually uh, do what they need to do. So we call them workarounds. And so when we, when we look at process mining, we can use tools to do that or we can actually break it down in a manual way and actually look at what are the process steps we, we do and where do we go out and use a spreadsheet or where do we go out and use some other information that may not be accurate, may not be the source of truth that allows us to make the best decision. And so, so processes are, are a key part of what, where we work with organisations. And, you know, as part of our change program, it's, it's about saying, well, what are the gaps that we actually have? So identifying those gaps. And so we, we, we've got um, a process where we work with, uh, organizations send a, uh, our change rep out to actually do a gap analysis mm -hmm. on site with all the people to be able to understand how often do they deviate from what should be mm -hmm. a, a standard practice. And, and then we can actually work two ways. One is we can align the technology to actually what the processes should be, but it also gives us the amount of change that we actually need 
to and, and target that change to the people where it's where it's required because lots of people do it because they either don't know there's no other option the solution doesn't support their information requirements and so so by knowing those all of a sudden we actually have a very clear picture about change about how those processes can be implemented and where we should focus our change effort yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's a, a great holistic view around um, how to potentially solve for inefficiencies, specifically not only in processes, but in your overall culture as an organization too, and leveraging technology to do so. Um, specifically, kind of coming back to the food and beverage area, I'm curious if there's any sort of commonalities when you look at process inefficiencies that you see throughout specifically food and beverage clients, what are some of their pain points when it comes to um, operating models? Um, I, I think the, the, the one that stands out, the, the greatest of all is, is the knowledge of about what they're producing. So they call them bill of materials. And, and what you find often is that the bill of materials is meant to be the source of Here's the materials I need. Here's how much it costs. Here's how much it's going to take to produce it. So there's a lot of information in a good bill of material uh, for a particular item. And, uh, and a lot of that is not clear. It's not concise. It's not kept in the one system. Um, and, and so what you find there is that, that that's probably the centerpiece where that failure starts from. There's a sense that mm -hmm. we can't rely on the bill of materials. We have to keep changing it. Our costs can't be uh, factored into that, so we can't understand how much is it costing us to produce. And so the bill of materials area is, is a real weak link when it comes to or the maintaining of bill of materials and the updating and, um, of, and keeping them uh, current is a, is a big area that uh, food and beverage struggle with because, you know, as, as, as you would probably have seen, raw materials have gone up through the, through mm -hmm. the roof as such. And so uh, not to mention raw materials, but also a number of other supply materials, packaging and those sorts of things have increased. If we aren't keeping an eye on that and understanding what it takes in our bill of materials, then it makes it very difficult for us as an organisation to actually produce and stay, you know, stay within the margins that we have, um, have identified and that we're actually selling for because at the mm -hmm. end of the day we might sell, but if we're selling for more, for less than what it costs us to produce, there's a very short road to survival there, isn't it? Absolutely. That is a very short road to survival. <laughs> So two questions about that bill of materials, because I think there's, you know, some really interesting um, nuggets we can kind of mine from what you just said in that great advice. So when it comes to distributors, a lot of times typically in specifically larger food and beverage uh, businesses, there's not a ton of variety in suppliers. Uh, so getting those raw materials and paying that premium seems to be something that that there's not a lot of diversity or there's not a lot of solve around being able to do that cost effectively. So we always say if you're experiencing supply chain shortage, breakage, anything like that, the first thing to do is really take a hard look at your suppliers um, and understanding that there might be a diversification of being able to produce them yourself or uh, acquire a company that produces them. Is that kind of the same for food and beverage or kind of, can you take us through the state of actually getting those raw materials? Yeah. And, and, and it's an important point that you raise there because, you know, our suppliers are vital to, to us as, as producers, but uh, we need to have relationships with those uh, suppliers so that 
they can actually either gear up to our requirements and understand what our requirements are. It's not like just I just contact you and buy something and hope that it's going to be right. You know, in the old days, that was probably an easier way to go. But these days, it's a lot more complex and there's a lot more um, components that go into it. And so building long-term relationships where you've got a, a supply window, here's how much we produce a year. So we're going to need this much product. Do you think mm -hmm. you could do that? And you adjust prices on on that sort of basis so that you're actually buying uh, um, on, a, on a quantity level over a period of time as against as a lot level, which is which is unpredictable as such because, you know, someone else might come and buy that lot before you get there and that's where some of the supply chain issues come from. So, so it's taking that step back and looking at how do we actually get certainty or, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, predictability in our relationships with not only our customers but also with our suppliers. Um, and, and that can provide that ability to be able to help them gear up so prices can go down because they're scaled to actually suit what our requirements are. Um, and, and we can also, when there's a shortage on their part, we can actually adjust what our production plans are so that we can actually uh, wait till that's, that's not a problem anymore and we can actually deal with it that way. So, so it is a, I suppose it's, it's one of those areas that, you know, we need to be able to take a different view. It's not, mm -hmm. we don't just in, just in time works in a supply, but when we're actually purchasing, we want to be able to have a, a longer term view than just this just in time view that, often we get caught with in the fact that we just want it when we want it sort of thing. Well, that's yeah. true, but I, but I need to have a lot more other things in place so that I can get it when I just want it. And is that a use case for emerging technologies such as AI or machine learning kind of in that forecasting to be able to, in a healthy way, predict what you will need as far as that relationship with that supplier? Is that something you would recommend? Oh yeah, yeah. Because what it allows you, what AI allows you to do, if you if you've set it up well, it allows you to predict some of the trends and provide some models. Uh, you know, and, and you can bring in additional information. So if if, if I've got raw materials like, uh, um, you know, I'm looking at uh, vegetables or those sorts of things that might be something they are seasonal and and depending on the season. So I can start to look at it and say, well, you know, if I overlay some other information there. My, my likelihood of being able to buy what I want to buy from that uh, supplier in that region would be compromised because, you know, if they're going to have a dry season, we're not going to be able to get as much. So I might need to look for another supplier to be able to bolster my requirements as such. And so AI provides that, that, um, that really important insight to be able to say, well, I can bring other factors in which actually drive my decision making and help me with my forecasting. And that's that's an area that uh, is, it's still very early days that people do that. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it really should be something that they work with, um, with their vendors or with their suppliers to be able to say, well, we need this and what's, what's happening? Are you going to supply it? And be able to you know, really get a clear understanding and relationship built on, uh, on what could be supplied uh, and not, not let the other vendor see that, well, they're going somewhere else. They're going somewhere else because the supply is that. And so exactly. it, yeah. the relationship stays strong, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. I, I think that's so true and such a great way to explain that. And so we've seen, specifically, we've talked to um, some different thought leaders on the space in our Ground Control podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcast. Wayne has been on um, Ground Control multiple times. 
Uh, but in a recent episode, we featured actually a software vendor, which we rarely do. But because of the emergence of AI, specifically in supply chain, as an additional kind of niche software add-on to these bigger, more complex systems. Is that something that you've seen for specifically uh, your food and beverage arena, those types of kind of more third tier systems emerge in supporting these types of new processes? Yeah, yeah, the, there's becoming a greater need. I think as, as we get pressured with how do we fix this problem of supply chains and, and uh, you know, being able to stay viable in, in a certain industry, you start to look outside and start to see, well, what, what else can I do? AI is, is, is showing that it has good application in that area. And you've got to be, you've, you've, it's not just a software vendor, you know, one of the mainstream software vendors that actually provides good AI. It's, it's a level of people understanding a function mm-hmm. that you're looking to achieve that actually can work with the solution. And so uh, we're seeing, it, seeing that happen and we're working with a client at the moment who has uh, some really advanced forecasting um, mm-hmm. methodology, but it, it leverages AI because it's building, it's looking at trends, it's looking at the information, then providing the algorithms that actually give you the predictability. And, and the, the level of um, trust that you can actually have in the models is really, really exciting to think that they could get that close. And I think that's a, that's a great uh, advancement uh, and a great, um, I suppose, advertisement for AI and, and, and its application in certain instances. We're here listening to a clip of Kyler and Wayne from Third Stage Consulting talking about a food and beverage case study. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation when we return. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95, where we're here playing you a clip of a food and beverage case study discussion between Kyler and Wayne Holtham out of Third Stage APAC. Let's continue the conversation. I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about some specific nuances or considerations for the food and beverage industry and specifically talking about compliance. So they're heavily regulated in in many other areas, and we we see that in a lot of industries, oil and gas, um, for example, aerospace, those types of other pieces. And we really have to take that into consideration when recommending a software or taking them through an evaluation. Is that something that you experienced as well with some of your food and beverage based organizations? Yeah, because uh, food, food, you know, we talk about oil and gas can actually be harmful to you if, uh, if it catches fire or blows up and those sorts of things. Food in the other way can actually be harmful if it's actually contaminated or it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's uh, loses its quality as such. And so, so it can be uh, a health 
health harm. Um, and, and these days with allergies, with a, with a lot of the, the, the things we start seeing uh, people are impacted by, then we need to be able to have a very clear understanding of what goes into our food, the traceability from, that they talk about from paddock to plate. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that's a real important factor for the food uh, and beverage industry. And so uh, whether it be dairy, whether it be, um, you know, uh, food manufacturer of uh, any, any produced or, or manufactured food products, it could be baby food, uh, could, be, could be ready meals, could be any of those sorts of things. Um, if, if we aren't sure that the quality is there and we've actually maintained all of those parameters that keep that quality high, then, then that's, a, that's an area that organisations are very, very um, uh, responsible for as such from a legislative mm-hmm. point of view, but also want to monitor as well because it does impact brand reputation. It impacts a lot of other areas of their business. And so, um, so, so yeah, so when we talk about the compliance part, there is, there's two aspects to it. There's the legis- legislative part as mm-hmm. well as the brand and, and the fact of the impact to our business as such. So, um, so, so, and you start to see where quality now, quality assurance um, capture is everything from what comes in the door to what goes out of the door and along the supply chain. So we're measuring and making sure if we've got frozen products, it stays frozen. There's none of it that actually um, gets to a point where it actually doesn't stay frozen. And, and so we monitor and capture all of that. And we need to be able to make sure that we are keeping an eye on that so that we can be sure that our product, as it's been supplied, as it's been sold, uh, has maintained all of those standards. And that's more of a responsibility for the manufacturer as the middle person uh, as um, to, to be able to maintain and, and define those. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that's such a huge complexity. How specifically do systems help support the compliance or that even that visibility to needing to have that as far as that quality assurance factor you mentioned? Yeah, I suppose we've, we're now at a point where, um, you know, we can capture information all the way along the supply chain, you know, whether it be the, the forklift driver who's bringing it in can take a temperature and, and uh, upload that. So at a point in time, you can see what, what the temperature of a product was when it came in. When you're distributing it, you can actually um, measure the temperature and the time and the whole long, how long it was in the truck and all of those sort of things. So you get a, a really clear picture of what's happened uh, along the supply chain, along, along the delivery chain. In the past, that was difficult because we had you know, people writing on a piece of paper. Today, we can capture that in real time. And that allows us to be able to bring that back and analyze that information to be able to give us that insight and make sure that our quality uh, is, is high, but also pinpoint where it's not and, and then we can address that. So, so the new systems give us a much wider opportunity to be able to capture information and then be able to review and analyze that information. Whereas, like I say, in the past, we relied on the fact that it was all okay and it was only by exception. And when we had a problem, we had to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think that's one piece that many people don't understand the pressure that goes into actual compliance understanding and quality assurance, specifically for food and beverage. For example, um, Third Stage actually just won here in the States um, on the Inc. 5000 list, which means the fastest 5000 growing companies domestically. 
and we, um, our, our North America team went to the conference and one of the keynote speakers was actually a, a founder of a baby food company and talked about the challenges with the baby food shortage and really only a handful of suppliers that had to completely shut down. And because of the regulations, it's very difficult to actually produce any other type of, of baby formula because almost the monopoly they had in the marketplace um, when it comes to competition. So I, I wonder, Wayne, in, in that type of, of setting where you have that overall arching compliance, how does that fit into your digital transformation strategy? Is that kind of a phase zero consideration? Does that come at the beginning? Is that just a box you check at the end? Where does that kind of fit? Uh, that, that comes right at the beginning. That's that's part of that operating model. And, you know, it's it's about product traceability. It's about uh, product quality. It's about those sorts of things because that's one of those competitive advantages that you actually have and you need to maintain. It, it's the it's almost the, the basis or the reason for being um, as such. And so uh, when you're in that space, whether it be um, baby formulas, as you, as you mentioned there, you know, the dairy side of things that... Um, that, that relates to, or the or the um, or the uh, um, pre pre produced uh, food, baby you know toddler food and those sorts of things. Um, all of that relies on very high levels of quality and understanding of that the product is not harmful in any way, and um, and so that is that is a very much a going in position, uh, and it's checked all along the way to make sure that you know the information, the data flows. Are, are very very traceable and uh, and you can actually at any point you can actually see where you've got uh, something that actually is going wrong absolutely and and I wonder if I could ask you specifically, I know we've talked a lot about food distribution, manufacturing, those types of things, but we've seen really the restaurant so the the business to consumer model completely mm -hmm. flip in the last two years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And arguably they had the most urgency or even desperation to go through a digital transformation to be able to do things like to-go food, delivery, those types of, um, of addressing labor shortage in the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically in that food and beverage sector. What has been kind of your experience or some of your observations of how that's evolved and changed when it comes to digital transformation? It's interesting because the view on the client or the customer that most organizations have is that they would uh, manufacture to an order and that would be provided. And, and, and what, what, what's changed is the fact that, you know, many food manufacturers now have that view that they can actually provide almost ready, ready to go products that become um, for a restaurant, they became become a contributor to the to the food, so the final finished food, and so you can you can add some final pieces to it, but it reduces the need to have as many people in a kitchen as such, mm -hmm. um, and and supports that view that you've got quality ingredients that are of a standard that a restaurant might serve, that are unique enough for a restaurant to serve, and so there's that view of the way that um, ingredient, I suppose, uh, preformed ingredients is what I would mm -hmm. call it. Um, are, are manufactured now and supplied and they actually feed the restaurant industry and the food, the ready-to-serve food industry uh, in a much bigger way than the, it did in the past. And, and it's, it's leveraged from that fact that, you know, people aren't available. COVID caused a lot of issues when it came to uh, producing food. How do we get there and, and be able to manage and still provide um, with ingredients that we, we don't have to make from scratch? Yeah, we um, do you have Chipotle in Australia. Have you ever heard of that? 
Yes, I have, yes. Yeah. Do you have them there or no? No, not yet, no. No, not yet. Well, they're they're coming. They started in Colorado as our claim to fame. They were in our neighborhood. Um, but they we did a case study, again, on ground control of the smart kitchen and the use of AI and actually robotics to um, kind of combat that labor shortage while creating more efficiencies and creating that compliance where it's simply healthier because of the fact that you don't have human interaction with your food. Uh, mm. So do you feel like just like smart manufacturing floors we talk about are the future? Do you think smart kitchens would be the future for food and beverage as a, an emerging technology? Oh, I, th I think they have to be. Uh, you know, what we're seeing here in Australia and, and, and seeing globally as well is the fact that we don't have the, the, the skilled staff around to be able to provide service as we did in the past. And so, so being out, how do we augment that? How do we actually reduce the cost of, of, uh, of you know, supplying, producing, manufacturing, servicing that clientele? How do we do that? And it, it, a lot of it is AI, it's robotics, it's, it's those sorts of things that allow us to be able to do that. And so um, I, I think that's, that's going to be the revolution when it comes to uh, restaurants, uh, you know, larger scale restaurants, um, to be able to, to leverage and, and really be able to stay competitive in that sort of market. Yeah, the no contact kitchen. Well, very cool. Um, with, I, as I ask all of my burning, trending questions, um, I want to give you some time to kind of take our audience through some of the case studies that you've been working with in the food and beverage industry, specifically within software selection and implementation. So if you could kind of give us um, company size, um, that how you took them through an evaluation or a selection and give us some maybe key nuances or a description around what that that looked like as far as your client work? Uh, one one uh, springs to mind is a food manufacturer. They're in a specific sector of the food manufacturing uh, area. They're Asian, Asian food here in Australia. Um, they are one of the largest uh, producers of Asian food. And so, um, um, you know, they, they supply nationally and they also um, import products as well as manufacture their own products. And so, so for them, it was about saying, well, we want to go on a digital transformation journey um, and so they asked us to be part of that. And, and for us, it was about building that operating model to start with. So you've gotten to this point. What now? How are you going to how would you like to operate in the future? And, and how will you know that you're operating that way? Uh, so when we actually are delivering a solution, how would you be able to recognize that in your business? And that's that's a key first step for us is to be able to identify that, you know, and, and they identify how they operate and where they want to go. So it gives them that ownership and, you know, that executive alignment as such, because it's interesting when you actually work with clients, we assume that everybody's on the same page and not, that's not always the case. And so mm -hmm. by getting everybody on the same page, you actually get a uniform moving, uh, a uniform way of moving forward. And uh, as against saying, well, this department wants this and this department wants that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you end up where you've got a bit of a mishmash of, of requirements and such. So, so that's the first area we work with. And then we start looking at, okay, well, you know, really, where is your focus in your business? And some people say, I'm a food manufacturer, wholly and solely. I do distribution as part of what I do, um, but I am a food manufacturer, whereas others will be a brand manufacturer, a, a brand that is mm -hmm. that does manufacturing so you might find some of your bigger organizations 
manage your brand. That's all they're worried about. And the manufacturing becomes not as much of their focus. And often they'll contra contract that out. And so really how do you want to operate is a, is a really key question and de determining what you need. From there, we actually look at it, then what are the processes? So do you, do you uh, have forecasting, understand demand management, have sales and operations planning as part of your, um, the, the way you actually know how much you need to actually make and manufacture? So you can actually cost that um, and, and, and work our way through those sort of, I suppose, principles of manufacturing. They are the traditional manufacturing principles, um, but many organisations have lost that. And I think because they bought technology and it would solve all of their problems as they believed. But if you don't understand the fundamentals and apply the fundamental principles of things like planning and scheduling and forecasting and, and those sorts of things, it makes it very difficult for them to be able to um, to just use technology as, as the solution as such. And so, um, so that's, that's once, once we work with that, we, we start then in the implementation phase, all of a sudden we've got some really clear processes that we are um, engaging with and, and uh, onboarding people with and getting them, creating the, the awareness about what they are and how they work and what it means. And then understand the data that it takes to drive that because you know, that's mm -hmm. the key point is if we don't have good clean data sets, then mm -hmm. our ability to be able to leverage and, and have reporting information is quite difficult. And so, you know, we're, we're with a client now where we're, um, we're through the selection process, we're, we're um, in the implementation. And what they're finding is as they build this solution, the quality of data they're actually bringing together to actually feed the solution is far better than they've ever had. And, and they've had this, it's more like a, um, a, a uh, an acquisition where they're actually revamping the business and they acquisitioned a new um, business into it. And so it's like a, a revitalization of a platform that was already working in one of the organizations. And so mm -hmm. you, could, you think, well, they would have a pretty good handle on it. But when you realize they really didn't use their, their, their um, software solution in any way apart from finance. And, and that's a thing we see often. And so now they actually understand what it takes to drive that, the data needs, the, the way they can use the system. And so they're the sort of things that you start to see at the other end where you get ownership of the way they work as well as the solution they're building. And that's a great outcome that we're starting to see um, from that client in particular. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, what a what a great success story. I mean, you hit on so many things there when it comes to executive alignment, mergers and acquisitions, a complete, you know, rebuild of processes. That sounds like a lot of change. Can you talk a little bit about change management or anything you might have experienced when it comes to resistance or how does a business go through that amount of change, even if they have the best intentions to be better? there must be some shifting and, uh, you know, a little bit of just overall transition in all of those kind of new processes. Yeah, I, I suppose we start back at the basics that the reason people don't do what they do is because they probably don't know any better. Um, mm -hmm. And that probably, that, there's, there's, no, there's no bad thinking in that. It's just mm -hmm. the fact that from their knowledge and the decisions they make, that's what they have. So for us, it's about taking them on the journey of, you know, what is it that these processes are? What, what, what are the, and, and understand the why piece. And so awareness and education. And then we also overlay, well, here's how the solution works or the system would work to actually do this. And for them, the, the why becomes, ah, that makes sense to me. Now I'm on the journey of change. And so for us, then we, we steward them all the way through the change process with 
us providing information, support, um, that leadership, that knowledge that's that, that they, they are looking for as they keep growing their, their knowledge about it. And so they become the change champions themselves, um, you know, and they are supported by, by us, which is a, a small team, to be able to uh, help them understand, well, if I did this, what does that mean, that interpretation piece? And so when it gets to the end of the solution, they own that solution. You know, we, we, they see us as being, well, you know, you guys helped us along the way, but it's funny how they, they take that ownership because they really know and understand their business far better than we ever will. But we can provide that objectivity of questioning and, and here's what processes are and we can sort of pinpoint where maybe their gaps are um, and focus them on those areas. And, and that's, that's essentially our change process. And um, mm -hmm. you know, we have a task force, we call it, and, uh, and those task force go in and they really start to earn the knowledge and learn that, that um, area of their business intimately. And that's, that's strong because it stays with the business. It doesn't walk out the door. Yeah, that I mean, that's uh, such a great approach in, in that empowerment of understanding you have this new process and it, it might be different, but having the ability to kind of have those results of clean data, of clean forecasting, all of those different pieces to showcase people is, is really, really powerful, um, most certainly. Uh, so, I mean, that sounds like an, an unbelievable uh, case study and, and well done to the third stage APAC team and to the client and our vendor partners all involved in, in that project. And we can't wait to hear more about it. So if you have a food and beverage client come to you and you're kind of in the first stages of conversations, what are some first steps that you recommend that they take to ensure that they're really ready for a digital transformation um, or to start to engage with a partner like third stage? Um, it's interesting, interesting, because each client is different in, in where they are on their journey. And just, just going back to that previous case study, the executive had gotten together and, and uh, identified the requirements or the things that they would have liked from the, from the system as such, or from, from an ERP if they put it in. And so for us, we started to look at what they actually had because some of the work that they'd actually, the thinking they'd already put in place was is quite valuable for us to be able to uh, look at where they are, what you know, how, how far along the journey they are. If they're very high level and uh, we just wanted to solve the world problems, then you, you know you, 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 your approach is different. Whereas if they've actually got some good thinking in there, then we start to leverage that thinking and start to then work with them about building that operating model and building those, um, you know, the functional design of what they might be looking at uh, in, in the solution as such and what level of change it might mean to their business and, and where they might see the benefits of the, of the business. Because we always look at how do I realise the benefits? I need to know that before I actually spend the money, not after I've spent the money. Um, and and that's, a, that's, a, that's not a software practice that uh, vendors like to uh, consider. Whereas for us, that's one of those things. If I'm going to spend, I want to see where that return investment actually is going to come from, mm -hmm. not a theoretical um, belief of where it might come from. And so, so that's, that's usually where we start is, is those sorts of things because that gets everybody engaged on the one page sort of thing. Uh, you know, they understand what they might be getting out of this, why they're doing it. Uh, and what the benefits might be. 
yeah, that unified strategic alignment is certainly important. And then also understanding, I think you hit on something that's very important, especially in more um, niche industries where you do have a lot of complexities, is just understanding that professional skepticism when it comes to vendors and what their sort of agenda is. That doesn't have to be a negative thing. They just have a specific job and it might not be to completely attach to uh, the organization's actual business value goals. So I think that's a, a really great point as well. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting. One of the uh, um, interesting side side things that comes out of doing the approach well is you actually get vendors to actually, if they really want to supply the solution, they become very engaged and very involved and want to be part of it. Um, but they're not the, the supply. The view of just the sales model becomes less of an issue. It's more that we actually want to actually supply a good solution. Mm -hmm. And we just recently had one where we were which uh, software selected down to um, three different options, and we were going through the demonstration phase. And one of the the vendors came to us and said, you know, for us to be able to um, provide this solution it would be this much money. And I said, well, it's not about the money. It's about whether the solution would actually deliver for the organisation. And he said, well, no, no, if, unless, they, unless they commit that, that this is the sort of money they want to spend, then, you know, we wouldn't be interested in doing a demonstration. I think that that signals the, the shift in the market where you've got some big players who run on brands and say, we are, we are and this is, a, this is a global brand, so it's... Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's uh, you know it's one of those uh, company software companies that is everywhere in the globe, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and their view was that well unless they can commit to this price and it was a, a really out there price it was you know it, it really wasn't value for money and and so you know that was that was a great outcome for the for the um, client because all of a sudden they realised these people are interested in our business these people are just looking to say well I can give you this for this much guarantee mm -hmm. it'll work without actually going through and being prepared to show that it would work. And, and that was a really, really valuable insight for us and also the oh, clients. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Every time, you know, sometimes I, I think I'm not going to be surprised on what comes out of a software vendor's mouth. I'm always like, what are you even talking about? And we, you know, along those lines, and we, we won't digress too much, but I think it's an important um, overall consideration. We recently had um, Marcus Harris, whom you know, on our live stream, who is uh, an attorney when it comes to contracting. And he's talked a lot about with COVID and the emergence of remote demos and the overall recording of demos has been a huge pain point for a lot of different clients because the vendors don't want their demonstrations recorded, which to me is like the weirdest, like why wouldn't you want it record? Like what would be the difference? Are you about to show something that's not actually possible? Is that why you're like hesitant to that. So it's always so interesting to me, um, those different conversations that happen. And, and hopefully those are always seen as good opportunities for clients to say, huh, maybe this isn't the best partner for me. Well, that's right. And, and I think it's probably the step towards making the software vendor salesperson more accountable. Mm -hmm. And many times in the heat of the, of the discussion, you know, they're showing the bells and whistles and all the shiny things that happen there. And they'll, they'll probably throw out a line that gives uh, someone will pick up on and make that um, and go, well, that, that's my expectation of what we're going to achieve or it's going to be delivered to us. And then when it gets delivered, it's not delivered. And in the past it was, oh, well, you know, we, whereas now you can actually go back and play that back and say, well, no, I did actually ask that question and here's yeah. what you said. And so uh, so from a, uh, I was, I'm sure from Marcus's point of view, that would be great evidence to be able to support yeah. 
you know, an expert witness case should it go forward. It's a dream. And speaking of expert witness cases, Wayne, you are one of our expert witnesses here at Third Stage. So kind of going above food and beverage, when we do engage in an expert witness case, obviously it's not a great scenario. There's litigation going on. There's, you know, huge costs in lawsuits, especially if they need to bring in uh, an unbiased expert, which is another big part of what we do here at third stage, because we don't have any sort of financial or relationship ties to specific vendors. So that makes us completely independent. So what is one of the main failure points that you see in your expert witness work when it comes to a failed implementation? It, it's, the, it's interesting, and, and it, it happens so often, is the fact that the, the vendor or the solution integrator, you know, they apply a methodology, and that methodology is designed to actually come in, you know, understand what you need, uh, build a solution, test a solution, and deliver a solution. But the, the bit that they they fail on is the fact that they don't really understand what the business does need. And, and so they put very little energy into that front end piece of really understanding, is our solution going to fit the way this business works or can't, can't change? You know, and, and uh, in, some, in some organizations, you know, although we have this view that we want to be able to have you know, vanilla something or a, or a very standardized approach, but in reality, we may have... Um, you know, situations that we can't change, you know, uh, especially in the labor sides of things, we may have enterprise bargaining agreements that lock us into certain conditions. And we can't just go standardized because it's, it's bound by legislation that we've mm -hmm. actually got these conditions we have to apply to or, or um, uh, respond to. And so the, the challenge you have there is the vendor comes in and they go, yeah, yeah, we'll go, we'll go standard. And then you find that later on, they realize that standard could never have worked. And, and all they do is just keep going, well, we'll add some more change requests in it. We'll do some things and changes. And, and you end up with a solution that doesn't meet the brief at the end of the day. The business is disrupted. And, and they are the sort of challenges that you have. And I think that's where, you know, these standard pra uh, practices where we have a approach of, of um, de deploying a solution misses many of those things about the business. Yeah. The knowledge of the business is not there. Um, and, and that's a, that's a key area that we find. And then, then it's hard for that technical leadership piece because commercial is getting in the way of actual um, what you should deliver. Absolutely. It's, I mean, that's such a great way to kind of put it. And so as an organization, learning from that, especially in an industry as complex as food and beverage, how can you ensure that your vendor partners completely understand, commit, and remain accountable for your business goals with the transformation project to avoid that very costly failure. It's, it's interesting. The, uh, one of our clients uh, has engaged us for an insurance uh, insurance governance piece, and so what we do there is we actually we sort of sit between the client and the and the vendor, uh, and we apply a methodology of entry and exit for the phases. And so it's making sure that you get delivery in full at the end of a phase prior to going into the next phase. And one of the big risks that happen in, and you see in the expert witness stuff is that, you know, the phases blend together and all of a sudden we're doing things in a later phase and we haven't completed the first lot of information. And so, so what we find is that this governance thing actually brings real clarity to the, to mm -hmm. the solution integrator. Here's what you must be delivering because here's what we're going to endorse and sign off. 
as as the steering committee and as us supporting the steering committee to do that. And it's a, it's a real change in dynamic because all of a sudden the software vendor the first time has been held accountable. And so that's something that is really important for not only the client, but the software vendor actually responds to that and actually can actually deliver that. Where they're not held accountable, that's one of the challenges where they feel, well, we can just keep, you know, keep the clock ticking and, uh, and we'll get to the end and, you know, what we don't, we'll just add an extra change request in to actually solve that problem. And so, so that, that assurance piece uh, or methodology that we apply really brings that accountability and also back to the, to the organisation as well, because if they were meant to provide information to the vendor and mm -hmm. haven't, then that accountability is also quite clear. And so it's a, it's a level of responsibility that's there, not just washed over and, and dealt with later sort of thing. So, so that's, that's an important one that, uh, that we see benefits from when we, we support implementations. Yeah, the quality assurance is, I always like to explain to it, is it's almost like an insurance policy for your overall digital transformation. You know, you wouldn't drive your car down the street without insurance be, because that's a huge risk. Um, for the driver and other people just in society in general. And it's kind of the same piece with quality assurance and risk mitigation. And I would assume, and again, you're the expert, so correct me if I'm wrong here, there is a, a heightened level of risk when you are in a food and beverage and high pressure entity where you have low margins, you have perishable foods, that must be a more important or a higher need for quality insurance. Oh, very much. And also the risk to disruption. So so if you have a disruption in your supply chain uh, when you have deployed, that becomes uh, a, a huge risk for an organisation. Mm -hmm. So if you don't get it right and everything doesn't work on the day, then then the business can actually really, really suffer because the, the, you know, they can't produce, they can't supply. Um, there's so many factors that actually impact their ability uh, to stay stay viable and solvent um, in those in those situations. So um, yeah, it is is a big one. And when you talk about assurance, it's interesting. You see some providers provide assurance, but they don't really provide assurance as we talk about it. You know, they they provide a, a governance where they might review some documents and and that sort of thing. They don't actually work with the client and the vendor to actually hold them to account. And I think that's. That's the difference we talk about with assurance. I see big projects fail where they've had a, new, a number of different consulting firms being the, the assurance partner as such, and that yet it still failed. And you go, well, how, how could have it failed if, if, if we'd applied a methodology that actually, and, and we'd actually gone to the effort of putting an assurance partner in? How did it still fail? And, and that's, that's often you start to see that they never pulled those things up. They, they let things happen. They were very third stage, or, uh, you know, I won't say third stage because third stage actually monitors it. But, they've, you know, they keep an arm's length to the project. And I don't think you can actually keep an arm's length when you are providing assurance and governance. You need to be in there and part of um, that whole steering committee, um, you, know, you know, the governance piece, understanding the deliverables and making sure that you've actually got oversight of that. And that's where you get good governance. Absolutely. And, and to the, the third stage piece of it, it's, it's that independence, 
because there's only one goal and one engagement with independent consultants, and that is the full accountability to the success of the client's project. There's no other financial agenda in selling software, in you know, working with a specific system integrator. And I think that's the biggest piece that we've seen a huge emergence in just our, our client's desire for that independent program assurance, because there's so much happening in that complexities. And again, so many competing agendas, having that one North Star that's able to speak the language, understand, you know, the red flags that come with a very expensive and risky implementation. And then also just be that coach, that digital transformation coach of how are we going to get to that target operating model? How are we going to get that really clean data that's going to benefit and maximize our business value? And, and having that advocate is really what we've seen as an emergence. And that's why we've grown so fast, because it's just not something that the marketplace has ever really had um, within. It, it's fallen on organizations to provide that to your point. And you don't know what you don't know, right? When you build a house, usually you wouldn't have a general contractor do the plumbing because that's just not their expertise. And the plumber doesn't care if you sell the house, right? So there needs to be someone involved in that to ensure that that business goals are actually being achieved and they're able to navigate that narrative that isn't so incredibly complex, especially within the food and beverage community. Yeah, and you've summed that up so well because because that is one of the things I think that that independence piece where I can rely on what I'm hearing without knowing it's biased or knowing that I've trained I'm training someone in actually my business along the way. You know, the one thing that we we do bring is that expertise and that knowledge. You know, um, which is important. You know, because if you've been down that road before, and the expert witness stuff helps with this in the sense that. You, you can actually provide that leadership and knowledge and 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 I call it interpretation. When something mm -hmm. happens, what does that actually mean? What's the consequence of that? And unpacking that for uh, organizations is a really important step for them to be able to understand what decision they should make. All right. Thank you, Kyler and Wayne. Thanks for playing that clip or being part of that clip that we could now repurpose on this podcast. So thank you for doing that. Uh, we've got a few things we're going to unpack and talk about. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So Hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. I think I, I think I, I think 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 95. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we just had Wayne Holtham on the show, and we played this clip of you interviewing Wayne Holtham that you did recently. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Well, I always learn so much from Wayne every single time I talk to him. I, I really, truly do. I keep waiting for the day where I'm like, oh, yeah, you've said that before. But no, he never does that. He always brings such a, a wealth of knowledge and is so eloquent in the way that he teaches us about um, about specific industries. And the thing that um, is so interesting about food and beverage specifically is just the complexities that you don't really consider in a lot of other, say, mainstream, if you will, manufacturing, if that's even a thing anymore. Um, but food and beverage has just such additional consideration, not only on how they do their own processes, but keeping up with the emerging technologies when it comes to energy reg regulations and then compliance when it comes to the specific uh, food and beverage. I know we talked about a few different emerging technologies when it comes to smart kitchens and robotics in the use of food and beverage. We kind of started our conversation around that and then moved into the specifics of the work that Wayne and team do for our um, our food and beverage clients in that area. But it's one of those things that you, you never really consider that until that is part of your operating model. And you have to continue to kind of hone in on how you become more efficient, become more lean and, and become more innovative all in, in the same piece of it. So not only selecting a software that matches that, but also understanding the additional applications that support your specific food and beverage distribution, food and beverage manufacturing, all, all kinds of different pieces in there. So it's a very complex industry and it really does take kind of that specialist to, to walk you through all of the nuances of what that means as far as enterprise supportive technology. Yeah. There's just so many complexities. I mean, you've got traceability, regulatory issues. Um, you've got the whole unit of measure conversion thing, which is, you know, you buy raw materials in one unit of measure, but then you're selling the end product in a different unit of, unit of measure. For example, you might have 16 ounces of something in a final product that constitutes one unit of a can or a box or whatever. So it sounds simple enough if you're in that industry, but that's a big, uh, that creates a lot of challenges sometimes with technology and process flows in terms of how you, how you convert those units and measure without breaking the production scheduling and the raw material forecasting and all that stuff. And it sounds like building on that, Eric, that not only is it important for all organizations before they go through a digital transformation in kind of that phase zero work to sit down and say, okay, what is our future state? What do we want our target operating model to look like and map that out? But it seems like from Wayne's experience um, and recommendations, it's even more important for complex organizations such as food and beverage organizations to do that before selecting a software so they can monitor and optimize any breakages or create awareness under understanding special requirements. Yeah. And that, that starts with the design, you know, the process definition, the design of the technology, the testing of the technology, user acceptance, testing, training, it has to flow all the way through all these important critical steps in the process. It's true for any organization, but food, I'd say the stakes are higher partially because of the complexities you talk about, but also if you can't produce food, that's usually a bigger deal than if you can't produce, you know, some, uh, discretionary product that people don't necessarily need when it's food there's, you know, people are usually more sensitive to the, those sort of outages or production issues. So, um, you're absolutely right. It's, it's really important. And Wayne had mentioned that lower margin, 
um, you know, less tolerance for risk disruption. And, you know, if you, if you have a distribution blockage and a truck full of oranges, those oranges don't have a shelf life except for a few hours to get to it, you know, a different refrigerated area, um, especially in regulatory. And that margin isn't huge and high for that. So the risk tolerance for those organizations from his um, overall insight is, is less. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. And it, it, it's even more important to make sure you've got a solid blueprint and implementation plan that, that mitigates those risks and takes those into consideration. Yeah. And, you know, I, I did ask him if he gets samples at every business he works for. And if you knew some of the client names that we had in that portfolio, you'd be very excited for him to get some <laughs> some samples. So we both decided that the next time we do a case study around food and beverage, we're going to need to get some snacks from all of our additional food and beverage clients. Um, but in all seriousness, such a, a an important conversation, especially around the nuances in software when it comes to food and beverage. And just a reminder, I don't know that we did a great job in um, in letting our audience know, Wayne will consult on other areas of our global business. He's part of our global team. So it's not like you have to be located in the APAC region if you do have questions about our food and beverage components. We have many clients in food and beverage throughout the world. Um, and he acts as you know an expert across our global teams um, too. So uh, just a reminder, if you do have questions on that, you can feel free to reach out to him directly or reach out to me or the organization and, and we can kind of take you through our experience there. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Well, good place to leave it too. Re reach out to any of us and we can chat with you about other case studies with within or outside of food and beverage as well. Um, well, good. Well, thank you for a great episode here uh, today, Kyler. Uh, thank you to Khalid and Wayne for being on the show. Thank you to the audience for the participation and the interest in the content and the, and the great questions in the chat fields. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, just a reminder, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. We love to hear your feedback. So thank you for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week in the meantime. I said episodes plural. Uh, I think that's right. I actually didn't even notice, so I would say it was fine. Nice. That's what I like to hear. You have options to work with here, Cassie. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> that's what we do. We're, we're here to make yeah. your life easier. Flexible. Okay. Let me try that again.